What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> ECW World Heavyweight Champion. The ECW. When you want to load down the professional wrestling, come right here to the two-man power trip of wrestling. You'll get all the load down. <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the, on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. It just You said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. but Chad and John, the two-man power trip. That's, uh, that's an awesome uh, name for yourselves. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Scotty Riggs, and you're listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hear me. Fear me. What's going on, guys? This is a 7-foot, 330-pound DNA of TNA. That's right. My DNA is outer space. And you're listening to the two-man power trip of professional wrestling. You know, I, I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know 10 times more than I do. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Is the two-man power trip of wrestling brought to you today and powered by Meowbox. Meowbox is the monthly cat subscription box service that is full of surprises, and it's delivered to your door every single month. And stay tuned a little bit later on in the show for a special promotion just for the listeners of the two-man power trip of wrestling, courtesy of our great friends over at Meowbox and Meowbox.com. And with all that being said, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Primetime, John Paz. And John, don't rub your eyes just yet. Don't squint that hard at the running time. Yes, you read that correctly. You are in store for another one of our epics. And today we are joined by a man formerly known as Colonel Robert Parker, known as Tennessee Lee, but we'll know him as Robert Fuller, the great Robert Fuller of the illustrious Fuller family. And man, oh man, is it a history lesson, to say the least, in the world of a guy who you don't really see that many interviews from, especially in this long of a uh, shoot fashion, I guess you could say, because in an interview where we have a lot to cover, we do cover a lot, and I got to say, my favorite part of it was the history lesson of the Fuller family and how they got started in the wrestling business. But, John, when you look at that runtime and you think about what we covered and how we covered it, man, oh, man, there's some things that we actually even omitted. I don't know how, but at the end of the day, this was indeed an epic. And, of course, I got to say it was one of the favorites that we've had thus far in the illustrious time the two-man power trip of wrestling has spent uh, exploring all the different territories of professional wrestling. 
Yeah, Chad, you know what? This was an absolutely amazing interview. Obviously, you can tell by the runtime, it's a long one, but an epic one to go along with the others in the epic series. And this was just unbelievable. We literally could have went on for hours and hours on end talking to Colonel Rob Parker, a.k.a. Robert Fuller. Just an unbelievable interview. One of our favorites, uh, just without a doubt. And the stories he had and the, the absolute amazing storyteller that he is. It was just so much fun. And, I, and we could just sit back and, and listen to it over and over again. It was just an awesome interview. An epic for sure. It's uh, one of our best ones. And it's definitely one of our longer ones. And, you know, like I said, we could have made it even longer. We could have been kept going. But, you know, for... Uh, for the sake of his time, and maybe ours, um, we didn't want to go too far with it, but we can definitely will have him on again for part two, and probably going to be another couple hours, because this was awesome. Awesome to get to talk to, and of course, you know, the great stories he had from Continental, from Memphis, of course, all over the world, all over the globe, all over the map, whatever you want to say. You know, of course, we have some WWF stories, some Jeff Jarrett stories, some Jerry Jarrett stories. We talk a little bit about Jerry Lawler. And, of course, we talk about WCW, where he was Colonel Robert Parker to a lot of the more modern fans. He had some awesome stories on stunning Steve Austin, a.k.a. Stone Cold. Had some great stuff on the WWE Hall of Famer Medusa. Some unbelievable stories about sensational Sherry Martell. Awesome stuff on the Harlem Heat. Just love the stuff on the stud stable. I mean, hilarious stuff. Awesome, amazing story that we put up on YouTube. Just a hilarious story about Ming and War Games and shitting his pants. So you got to listen to that one. Go to YouTube, check it out. Listen to this interview. You will absolutely love it. Amazing stuff from Colonel Rob. Absolutely. And another cool thing about this interview, which I like uh, in kind of the same way I was explaining the Mark Lawrence interview with the fact that we haven't gotten that in depth into world class championship wrestling like we did with Mark Lawrence. Now we get to dig into the continental wrestling territory and the fact that the Fullers, both Ron and Rob, have such a reputation with that continental territory. And it really was a proving ground for a lot of people. And it was a transition place for a lot of people. And I really love the fact that we were able to get Robert Fuller's take on Continental and kind of go into the thoughts and the booking of some of the ideas and some of the more famous angles of Continental. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's just like world class. There's not too many people left that can really explain it in the uh, business sense, I guess, like we had with Mark Lawrence and world class. But of course, you know, like I said, you go to the horse's head when you want the information. And for Continental, that horse's head is Robert Fuller. You know what, Chad? One of the things that we rarely have talked about on the show, and we were just dying to talk about it, because we had Colonel Robert on, and that was Continental. Obviously co-owned. He's a former co-owner of it, him and his brother. And obviously he's a family business. Such an underrated territory. It's almost a forgotten territory, because it's been hard here and there to find some footage. Maybe if you scour YouTube, you can find some. But it seems like it's been harder and harder to find footage of Continental, and that kind of adds to the allure of it, adds to the legendariness of it. But there's so many unbelievable talents that went in there, so many great matches that came through, so much great booking and, and everything else. And obviously the Fullers are all a part of that, and we go into great detail about the forgotten and underrated territory of Continental. You may have heard of it. It's where the original stud stable was formed. And it's just you, get, you go out of your way and find some Continental stuff, but it was finally great to be able to talk some Continental here on the show because, Chad, I know you were dying to, and I was dying to as well. One of the best so far of 2016, 
and one of the best options that we could possibly go to on a week like this where, you know, there's a transition going on between WrestleMania and the rest of the stuff going on in the world of professional wrestling. So why not take a long walk down memory lane into some of the best territories that wrestling has ever produced as well as learn from the mind and learn from the voice of such an illustrious wrestling family like the Fullers. And we really hope you enjoy this two-hour-plus interview, quite possibly the longest interview that we have ever published. And we are very proud of that. And we're also very happy that Robert Fuller spent as much time that he did talking to the two-man power trip. And with that being said, we also want to extend a great thanks to the folks out at the Icons of Professional Wrestling and Comic Book Collector Fest in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, as well as extend a nice big thank you to Tommy Dreamer for the hospitality at House of Hardcore. It was an amazing night, and I know John and I, we made a a lot of friends that day, and it was really something very cool, and we're looking forward to the next Icons of Wrestling and House of Hardcore hitting Philadelphia in September. Look for something down the road from us. It's going to be quite huge uh, if we do things the way we are planning, at least in the very early stages. So with all that being said, John, today's episode is brought to you by our great friends at Meowbox and Meowbox.com. And when you hit Meowbox.com up and use the code POWERTRIP10 in the checkout box, you're going to get 10% off your first monthly box subscription. So whether you've got a cat or you know somebody who does, you're going to want to hook them up with a 10% off gift courtesy of the two-man power trip of wrestling. And as we all know, that my buddy over here, Jonathan Primetime Paz, and his little cat, Lucy, they love me out, Box, but I'm not going to tell you any more about that. I'm going to hand it over to Primetime Paz. He's going to tell you a little bit more about Meowbox, and he's going to throw it on over to uh, Robert Fuller after he hits you with a little bit of two-man power trip of a wrestling business. Yes, Meowbox, baby. They are the best. They have a a little service called One Box Can, where every Meow Box purchase will get you a can of food donated to a shelter cat on your behalf. So that is excellent. Also remember, all edible items are made in the USA or Canada, so you know where your edible items are coming from. Now, if you have a picky cat like mine, Lucy, who uh, has a bit of a special diet, you can replace your edible items with toys and surprises, which little Lucy absolutely loves, and that is great of Meowbox. So just remember, folks, that is Meowbox.com, promo code POWERTRIP10 for 10% off your first subscription. Again, Meowbox.com, promo code POWERTRIP10 for 10% off your first subscription. Now for some TMPT business on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at WrestlingPal and at Two Man Power Trip. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, please subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Also, check out the feed for prior great episodes featuring the late great American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, Harley Race, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, Stan the Lariat Henson, Dale the Patriot Wilkes, Matt Morgan, Homicide, and so, so, so many more. So please check that out. Also, you can check us out on Player FM, the I-95 Sports Network, and the Top Rope Press Radio Network on TopRopePress.com. Also, please check out our Pro Wrestling T-Store. It is new, and it is awesome. So check out the TMPT, Two-Man Power Trip of Wrestling page, on ProWrestlingTees.com, and order one of our shirts today. Also, wire over there. 
scroll over to the Kevin Thorne page where you can become a member of the Bite Club. And speaking of Kevin Thorne, if you're looking to book Kevin Thorne, a.k.a. Mordecai, a.k.a. Kevin Fertig, please email bookings at tmptofwrestling.com. That is bookings at tmptofwrestling.com. And now, without any further ado, a former two-time AWA Southern Heavyweight Champion, a former six-time USWA Tag Team Champion, you may know him as Tennessee Lee, the Tennessee Stud, or even Colonel Robert Parker, but here we know him as one man, and that's Robert Fuller. Please enjoy. Joining us on the line tonight is a professional wrestling legend in every sense of the word. He's done everything there is to do. He's been a manager. He's been a wrestler. He's been a booker. He's been a promoter. And that's quite easy to do when your family is entrenched in the history of the business as his. I want to call him about a couple different names. I'm going to call him the new Tennessee stud. I'm going to call him Tennessee Lee. I'm going to call him Colonel Rob Parker. But it's Robert Fuller who joins us on the line tonight, and thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. You know, it's it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure to be with you, John. That uh, you're you're right on the nose there when you talk about uh, being a uh, the largest wrestling family. That we are the largest wrestling family in all of wrestling and all of history. And so uh, it's great to be with you and be able to talk about it. It's uh, it's our pleasure because. You know, it's so much fun when we get to go back and do research. And when you get to watch clips and you get to study and you get to see things. But, you know, we've talked to people who have the family history, but it's like yours goes back so far and so deep. And there's so much I want to touch on. And, I mean, I want to talk about Continental. I want to talk about your time, obviously, working with WCW. But we got to start at the beginning, and that is your family history in professional wrestling how did your family get started in pro wrestling? And obviously the transition would be, then how did you decide that you wanted to be in the business? Well, you know, uh, my, my grandfather, Roy Welch, uh, he, he was actually the pioneer of, of our family for wrestling. And he had three brothers, Jack, Herb, and Lester, and all of his brothers wrestled. And if you were around the Tennessee area from the 40s, 50s, 60s, the biggest names in Tennessee were the Welch boys, and that was uh, Herb, Jack, Lester, and Roy. And uh, Roy was, uh, uh, was later became uh, the promoter uh, out of Nashville of five states, and he was the, the, the uh, most renowned wrestling promoter of all time because he had the largest territory back in the, the 60s, uh, late 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even into the 90s and, and all of the business, you know, before cable took, took hold that he ran uh, wrestling out of Tennessee, and he also ran Kentucky and uh, Alabama, uh, uh, Mississippi, and Arkansas. And uh, he was a, 
he was a, he was very renowned as a promoter as well as a wrestler. He was a real tough guy. He got got things in uh, done by strong arming people, and he was a he was a pretty pretty mean man to do business with. I know growing up with him was a little tough sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's always uh, that's a great way to start the family tree there, and of course when you work your way down and. You know, you've got cousins, you've got brothers, and, of course, your father. And watching your grandfather, your father, everybody involved in wrestling, what made what made wrestling stand out to you and say, you know, I really just I want to be involved in this? And, I mean, is it just a bloodline thing? It's just in the blood? Or is it something that you really strived at a young age that you wanted to do it as well? Well, you know, if it, you being a wrestling fan, and for, I'm sure you are from the way that you're talking to me, that, that uh, you understand that... You know, if you watch a real good wrestling match, you watch two guys really go at it, and 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 and, and you get you on the edge of your seat, and even stand you up, and and uh, and you know, and just I mean, give you the time of your life. Well, I I had that a thousand times as a young boy growing up that I watched my grandfather wrestle. I later on watched my father. I enjoyed watching uh, Roy, my grandfather's brothers, wrestle and. And, uh, you know, I'd go to those wrestling matches, and I'm telling you what, I could not wait till the bell would ring. And uh, and I had so many uh, friends of my father's and my grandfather's that, that befriended me, you know, being my grandson and my grandfather, and even my dad's boy that, you know, I met a lot of the guys. And, uh, and, and I was really into the baby faces of the guys. I was into the good guys, and... And uh, I sold pictures for him as a little boy, probably from the age of 10 years old to the age of 14. You know, I'd I'd go in and I'd collect everybody's pictures and I'd sell them at the wrestling matches. And I'd go to, you know, pretty much all of the shows. And and, uh, certainly every time that I had a chance to. And uh, I never missed any TVs. I never, I mean, I was just enthralled by the idea of wrestling. And I just went around looking in the mirror and making interviews. And and uh, and Dad always had a ring in the backyard and uh, and in our barn around our house there. And the, the, all of the wrestlers would come out. Even one time, I won't get the, off on another story, but even even one time he had Elvis Presley come out. And uh, boy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> As a little boy, you know, he says, my dad says, hey, you know, you, know, you guys go get lost today, and, you know, we got you know, this special guy coming out. And then we found out from my mother it was Elvis Presley, and so we didn't get lost. We went up in the barn loft, and we watched him train and everything. So, you know, it just, uh, just, just enthralled by the idea that someday I might get a chance you know, particularly if if I was big enough and I worked out and I was, a, and and as growing up as a young man, I absolutely believed everything, and I had plenty of reason to uh, by watching my grandfather and and growing up around him. He was the meanest man I ever knew in my life, and uh, to me the most dangerous man, and. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure Jimmy Golden, my cousin, and my brother Ron they would would uh, say the same thing that we we uh, we not only respected our grandfather, but we were sometimes scared to death of him. <laughs> he was a he was a different kind of fellow. That he uh, he he was uh, he was a real tough guy. You know, and and obviously we're going to get into it as well with the promoting that your family has done. But with your grandfather. 
how did that help him being a promoter? If he was that imposing, you know, to children, obviously that's probably not that tough, but to be a promoter and have that kind of that edge to him, is that something that really helped him because he had a very long-standing career as a successful promoter? You, you know how he got started? This, this, this is a great story. That uh, He got started, he would wrestle, uh, and he'd go to uh, towns around Dyersburg, Tennessee, where he lived. He owned a dairy farm there, and he and and, uh, and he owned a little wrestling company around Dyersburg, Tennessee. He had four or five towns there, so right across the river, Jonesboro, Arkansas, and Carothersville, Missouri, and and Dyersburg and Jackson nearby, and a few little towns. But he would go to wrestle for guys, say near Nashville or somewhere, another promoter. And he would work for them four or five times, and cooperating with them, and uh, and 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 he he insisted that he be put over and that he be treated well. And so after he would get pretty good uh, standing with with the people in the crowd, and you know drawing the ticket, that uh, and he would just advise the guys that work in the company, uh, the wrestlers that work for the promoter. That uh, next week the promoter won't be coming back because I, I'm going to be the new man here, and when you work next week, you work for me, and uh, and he and he uh, he'd fight for it. That uh, he he had a few guys. Uh, he had a guy called as Pat Malone. He called him Pie Face Malone, and he had. You know, it was almost like a gangster group. He had some real tough guys, and uh, he'd also get those guys over with, uh, you know, with these promoters and stuff. And then he'd just decide, okay, it's time to make the move, and he'd just advise the promoter that next week you won't need to come back, that uh, I got it all tied up. The building's mine, and the guys are all going to work for me, and you're out of business. And uh, he was... Yeah, and he was willing. My grandmother would tell stories that you know, we was little boys, and he'd say, you know, Roy, uh, we went and, and dropped him off with the guys there at the Mississippi River to ride the ferry across, and they were going over to, Ar- to Missouri or Arkansas, and and, uh, and they weren't invited, and they were told that you know, you don't cross that river, and you don't come over here, that you know, that we'd had enough of you, and we're, we heard about you, and you, you were not going to put up with you. And my grandma said they just load up. I mean guns. And at the oh she gosh. said they she said they'd cross that dead gum river on the ferry and she said, you know, other side sometime we'd hear shooting. She said it just uh, that my my grandfather just he just he he was he took about everything that he wanted. And he was uh, as growing up around him as little guys. He, we were uh, we were very frightened at times of him because he was a loud talking, and you know, bless his heart, he cussed an awful lot. And you know, that's uh, that for young fellows. That's that's not such a good thing to be around a guy with a real foul mouth. But in his case, that was his character. That's who he was, and the, the way that he reacted about stuff. And boy, he'd be at the supper table and he'd pound that dadgum table and bad dog not bust that son of a gun in the face and blood flew against the wall and you know he'd be telling stories at the dadgum dinner table like that that you know i kicked him in the head and i kicked him and boy he was in a puddle of blood and i stomped a mud hole and that stinking no good <laughs> you know we grew up around that type of thing and so we had absolute and complete respect 
for wrestling because we thought, hey, you know, if um, if, if we were to think that wrestling wasn't real or something, good Lord, it's no telling what he'd do to us. <laughs> wow, so, yeah, I can't imagine. That's uh, yeah. wow, that's fantastic. And then, you know, so your grandfather's got this, uh, you know, this established, uh, storied history there. So then, your father as well. You know, you guys just were, it was just a success after success when it came to promoting. But what what do you think it was about the promoting aspect of wrestling that drew your family to doing so? Because, and like I said earlier, we're going to get into Continental because I'm really, I'm dying to talk about it. But I want to hear about what you have to say with your father's uh, track record as well. Another longtime successful promoter. Uh, but what was it about you guys that you just, you had that knack to be, uh, on that creative end and really, you know, getting the shows out there well, and making the people come back. You know, more. what happened when my when my father uh, decided that he wanted to wrestle, uh, my grandfather uh, said there was too many Welches around Tennessee and that, uh, and that uh, he, he didn't support my dad wrestling. As a matter of fact, he, he told him, get lost. You know, we don't, you know, we, there'll be no more Welches wrestling here. It's just me and my brothers and, and uh, of course, some other family members, and uh, so my dad decided he'd wrestle anyway, and so he got involved with some guys. And uh, and one night he he uh, and my dad's name is Edward Welch, Ed Welch. Uh, one night he was uh, he was substituting for a guy named Buddy Fuller, and uh, and uh, he, he he did real well in the match and stuff and then, then the promoter said he liked him and he said we're not going to change the name that this guy buddy fuller i never use him anyway and you just keep the name and so so dad kept the name buddy fuller all through his career and when my brother and i started to wrestle then uh then we we took the name fuller also it was robert fuller and ron fuller and uh and and you know and I know Roy my grandfather he never figured you know but when they came out today you, they have history books and you go through the history book you'll never really find Roy Welch in there or Jack or Herb or probably Lester uh he kind of shot himself in the arm by not cooperating with my dad getting into the business and and all but my my father uh he he was just he was just determined to be a success and and one of the things that my dad wanted money you know you asked me why he did it it, it was it was a it was, it was predominantly for the money and he knew that hey uh you know the the the, the little b makes the honey and the big b gets the money type of deal you know so i'm going to be the promoter and i'm going to run my own business and and he ran it pretty much like like his father did with a real strong arm that if you work for my father you didn't get an easy ride as a wrestler that every guy that worked for him uh they had to do what you call hard ways i i, I know you guys are probably familiar with that mm-hmm. but uh but if there's if there's blood in the ring and you know and a guy might produce his own blood but never anything like blood capsules or anything you hear like movie stuff or anything like that the guys are bleeding they're bleeding but my my father he was a guy that said hey once in a while you got to give it back to the business that feeds you and so he would just tell guys you know he'd say well you know monroe and billy wicks and sputting monroe wrestling and dad would just say hey tonight you know uh wicks is you know monroe's going to bust your eye and we're going to get you some stitches and 
we'll pay for the deal and everything. But he 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 seldom hired any guy that didn't realize when he was hired that some place down the line he's going to be busted a hard way. And uh, my dad was just he was the king of that. That he uh, and he was very good at it. As a matter of fact, that my dad would always tell you, he'd say, "Man, I can cut you easier than the sharpest blade in the town." <laughs> and, he, and he could, and he could. I mean, he could, he could, uh, he could, he could hit you. He was a one timer. You know, a lot of times you figure a guy's going to bust you a hard way, and he might have to hit you five or six times. He's going to get it done. My dad was a one timer. He'd get her done, man. You'd go get your stitches. He had a lot of guys scared of him. Yeah, that's uh, I can definitely see that with uh, a one-time hard way. That's uh, without a doubt something to be in fear of. But something that you know I kind of wanted to touch on with your dad too, and uh, kind of even in reference to your grandfather promoting is, you know, the the competition being a little bit more uh, a little stiff upper lip uh, back then, and uh, being yeah. a lot of uh, you know bad blood between territories. And, you know, where your father was promoting, obviously, it was, you know, you you had your area, and if you, you know, tried to sneak into somebody else's, you were going to have some kind of trouble. But was there anything that you learned from yeah. your dad with some of those wars that were going on back then that, you know, he really either stood his ground? I know there was times where, you know, he would kind of have the upper hand and, and take his, uh, you know, his, you know, his approach to doing certain things, but... Uh, did you learn from him about standing your ground as a promotion and really uh, going, you know, yeah, going to battle? Uh, you know, John, back in the day, uh, NWA was very big, National Wrestling Alliance, and and there was forty eight states of NWA that, and then they would meet every year in Las Vegas or St. Louis or somewhere, and they would, and all of these big. Big shot promoters would all come and they'd all meet and they'd all decide trade talent and decide who who was a problem in the business and who who might they might add to the NWA or who they would never add to the NWA and and they they were just a monopoly of wrestling and uh, my father was always a, a big believer in that and he was always well respected in the NWA and so was my grandfather who was part of a founder of the NWA that uh back in those days they'd get a lot done through that they would trade talent like baseball and football teams do today uh you know one state would call another and say I need a young guy and the other one would say well I need somebody with a little maturity and so they would switch talent around and and uh and these guys and and they would back up one another that any any time that uh someone would come in if you were a member your business was a member of the NWA if somebody tried to come in and start a business over top of you they would they would get five states to say if you were running Alabama like we were Bill Watts next door in Louisiana and my grandfather and, and, uh, and Nick Goulis north in Tennessee and then over to uh, to Carolina that they would all send their best guys and they would just flood your territory with the best talent in the world and there just was no way to to uh to come in and really run against you, you know, they could give you, they could put a power show on like, like nobody in all the world could. And so standing together and sticking together, they could stop all opposition from really getting a leg hold and getting started. And then, you know, if it came right down to it, sometimes my grandfather's tactics would, 
come in effect and uh, somebody would get hurt. And so, uh, you know, in our case, when we ran our business, things had settled down a little bit from all of that. Uh, you know, it wasn't so violent. But uh, at the same time, uh, we did have a lot of support from areas around us. And we befriended, man, we'd do anything for our next-door neighbor that was in NWA. That Even my brother and I, we, you know, ourselves, we would head over to, to do anything we could to help if they ran into some problem with opposition or somebody trying to come in and and take over things and so uh they kind of kept it under wraps you know back in the day and uh it, like i said it was this big bunch of big shots and they were all tough guys and you really didn't want to mess with any of them and uh and they, they and, and you know they all took it it's the funniest thing all the promoters back in my grandpa and my dad's day they were the toughest guys tree and they'd uh you know, themselves, they would hurt you. And, you know, they could go in and deal with their talent, and a guy might be the toughest guy you ever knew, but he might not be to the standards of the fellow writing him the check. So, you know, and the, 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 it was kind of that way. The business was that way back in the day. My brother and I, I know we ran our business, and and uh, my brother would book for a year, and then, then I, he'd take off, and I would book for a year when we were running uh, Continental Wrestling. And, uh, and you know, I handled a pretty volatile crew. You know, I'd have uh, 16, 18, sometimes 20 guys working in my crew. And, uh, and you know, and I, I, I didn't put up with any bull crap that, uh, you know, my dad raised me uh, in, in the footsteps of my grandpa and him. We had to know how to wrestle. My dad was a hooker. And I, I don't know if you know what a hooker is, but... It's a person that that uh, learns wrestling in a in a form to hurt you, and that he just knew how to turn turn things the opposite way they're supposed to go, and uh, he could really hurt you real bad in the ring. And he, the guys that could do that were called hookers. And uh, my brother and I, we didn't get uh, a pass on that. That uh, we went in the old. Uh, sweat box down here in Tampa when we were teenage boys, Eddie Graham and, and, uh, and uh, Hiro Matsuda and Bob Roop and, and Jack Briscoe and I mean it's just you know a lot of tough guys and uh, and they were real rough on one another I mean we'd go in, wrestling was real I mean when you went in there to train, wrestling was real that's just the way that it was and we'd do takedowns and it'd be you know six eight of the toughest guys you'd ever see and and you just you you'd just have to take every one of them down you just one to the other one to the other one to the other one and you might not be able to take the guy down but you darn well got to give it a good try and uh and if you fail too many times uh, eddie was a real hard guy to be around eddie graham and you know he beat up a lot of guys and you know it's just you, you had to be tough you just had to be tough and you'd never get a push in this business and really, my brother and I, we kind of ran our business a little bit like that, too, that we didn't like giving guys a break or making them champion or having having a guy in a real good top spot if he couldn't take care of himself because we were worried about the guy going down to the bar and having too much to drink and some farmer beating the fire out of him. <laughs> so we... Uh, <laughs> 
we just we we made sure that when we chose our guys that were going to be on top that we were using well. Generally, they were able to take care of themselves, and uh, and you know we had no choice growing up. My brother and I. That dad was awful with my brother and I. He he would come home when I was a teenage boy in high school, and he would have a forty-year-old block mason weighs 300 pounds and he'd, he'd pull up driveway and it don't matter if i was going out on a date or whatever it is and he'd say hey boy take your shirt off come out in the front yard i want you to wrestle this guy you know and just guys twice my age and uh and twice my weight and everything and then you know dad would just me and ron we were the guinea pigs for for guys that would come up to dad and say ah, i want to be a wrestler i thought i'd like to be a wrestler and uh, he'd always say, "Well, you know, I don't want to, uh, you know, do it, give you a try, but I got this. I got a kid here. He's a little punk. He's 16 years old. And he'll give you a try, and we'll see how you do." And then Dad would always tell me and Ron, he'd say, "You know, he said when I bring these guys in, I want you to rip them up." <laughs> he'd say, <laughs> "You know, he'd, he'd say rip them up, man." And I know I'd, a lot of times I'd have big, strong guys, man, and I knew. That you know, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna let this guy just, I'm just gonna give him a hold, let him squeeze himself out, you know, until he blows up, gets gassed, winded, and then I'm gonna stick it in him real hard, you know. So, <laughs> so, and my brother was the same way, and so we just, uh, we took care of Dad's business like that. Dad kept referees, in in his uh, that worked for him. His referees were the toughest guys in some cases that he had, and they were 50, 60 years old. But what Dad would do, a guy come in to the show and he'd say, oh, I'd like to be a wrestler. I think I can do it, no problem. And Dad would say, well, I'll put you with my referee. Wait till after the show, I'll put you with my referee, and we'll see how you do with the referee. And he had old referee, Charlie Carr, that was just the toughest. He could beat everybody. And uh, and he'd say, yeah, you said, this guy would say, well, he's an old guy. He's 60 years old. Dad said, well, don't don't worry about that. We'll just see how you do. See, And then uh, things work out, then we may give you a shot. And, and Charlie would just scream him out, you know, 15 different ways. And Dad would let him know, well, obviously you're not cut out for it. And and they were glad to leave and not be a wrestler anymore because uh, Charlie had hurt him pretty bad. <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> So yeah, so dad he and and if you ever got to got my dad to give you a tryout, it was the worst thing you'd ever do in your entire life. He he would he would he'd cut you fifteen different paces on your face and apologize every time. Oh, I'll be darned! Look at there, you got a dead gum little look. You got a little cut over your eye there. Ah, doggone! <laughs> look at that. It's a ah, son of a gun. My head hit you right in the nose. You look at you say, ah, hell, your nose is broke. Ah, come over here. You you need to try out. You 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 came for a tryout. Don't worry about the nose. He get your nose, pull it down, straighten out thing, and then boy, and then he smack you with an elbow on the other eye and cut you there. And just you know, say, ah, be dang, son of a gun. You walked right into an elbow. You know, so he wasn't he wasn't the guy that you wanted any training. And when I got uh, as a young guy into the business, I had tons of guys that were scared to death of me because of my dad. Because they thought, oh, Lord, your dad, uh, you you know, I don't know about you Fuller boys. And, you know, I was the nicest kid you'd ever want to meet. <laughs> you know, if you didn't 
smart talk me or be goofy or, or be a jerk some way that I would never, ever do anything but befriend you and be a good friend, you know. But unlike my grandpa and my dad, my brother and I, we had a nice streak to us. My dad always told me, he said, someday, boy, somebody's going to beat you up real bad. You know, and thank God, you know, good Lord above, it never happened to me. I don't know how I got away with it, but hmm. a lot of years of booking and wrestling, and uh, and I guess just just liking the business and liking the guys I hung out with, and and uh, getting the respect deserved, and never wound up having to get the living crap beat out of me like my dad thought I'd get. So, <laughs> <laughs> business is a tough place, man. It's uh, and even today. Even today, there's there's a lot of things going on in that dressing room back in the back that that uh, that don't seem quite civilized sometimes, and uh, we just we go on and live with it. I know I've seen it as a booker. I've seen I've seen Ken Shamrock and uh, and Curtis Thompson bench pressing. 450 pounds, and I've seen them go at it, man, in the middle of the dressing room and fighting like crazy, and one of them grab a dadgum holt on the other one, and the guys are all looking at me because I'm supposed to be the boss, you know, and they're going, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I'd say, hey, boys, that's concrete you're on there. And everybody just look at me like, like, is that all you got to do? And say, yeah, I'm just warning them they're on concrete. You know, you can go down mighty hard on concrete. And <laughs> say, well, yes, I'm going to wait until they're blown up and, and gassed, and then we'll go over there and try to do what we can to get them apart. And that may even be a problem then. But, but you know, it's a, it's a pretty crazy place sometimes, a wrestling dressing room. Absolutely, and you got to love – the old school mentality of, you know, your father and your grandfather. And, you know, obviously you're kind of missing wrestling today, but when you got into the business as a wrestler, was there a lot of pressure put upon you and, and your brother, you know, kind of to fill those shoes? Uh, you know, uh, we uh, when we started, Dad didn't want, he was a little bit like his father. He didn't want anybody because he was uh, promoting, he and Ray Gunkel were the owners of Georgia Championship Wrestling. When I got out of high school, uh, they were the owners of Georgia Championship Wrestling, and we owned a ranch about 25 miles south of Atlanta. And Dad just came to me and he said, uh, hey, son, it's summertime. I got out of school in May, and Dad said, July. He came, he said, hey, 5th of July. And I said, oh, no. I said, no, I'm just a kid, you know. <laughs> he said, no, no. He said, you're booked, and you got five bookings up in Tennessee. And he said, and I'm going to go up there with you. And he said, you're going you're gonna to start wrestling. And, boy, I just I said, no, no, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. He said, well, you may not be ready, but you're booked, and so you're going. And so uh, that's the way I started wrestling. And, uh, and Dad refused to let. Uh, us be winners at first that particularly in georgia because he was like well i'm not going to be the boss and and be accused of uh of taking care of my boys that uh my boys are going to have the roughest go of it and they're going to uh they're, they're never going to be winners <laughs> you know until until they gain the respect that they deserve 
that, uh, you know, I'm not going to rain on my parade and I'm not going to let them uh, be one of, you know, one of these stories of, well, there's Buddy Fuller trying to push his son and his son's not ready and trying to get him up on top main event and he's not ready to be there. And Dad wouldn't have any of that. He he just avoided that. And the way he avoided it is, is uh, making it real tough on me and my brother. Uh, he even had he had us both busted hard ways as young boys, and you know, and the older guys in the business, you know, they'd look and they'd say, "Ah, God, buddy, why'd you have to do that?" You know, he's just a young kid, good-looking boy. What do you want to bust his eye for? That's say, "Ah, to hell with that." You know, he's a he got to pay his dues. Everybody pays their dues, and and uh, and he actually, you know, in most cases, have the wrestlers that we're around the dressing room, feel a little bit sorry for us. They say, hi, ah, these boys never do get a push. Uh, they 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 work harder than anybody, uh, they, and their old man's mean to them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so so it, it, it allowed us to have a, a different type of respect. You know, you have some, some guys that got started in this business, and uh, Nick Goulis' son started to wrestle, George Goulis, and Nick decided he was going to be a main event right away, and uh, Jerry Jarrett, uh, Jeff Jarrett started, and uh, and Jerry wanted Jeff to have uh, real quick success. And, uh, and any time that happened with George and it happened with Jeff and it, it, ha- it happens w- with any young fellow that I ever knew that his father was a promoter and the father decided, I'm going to make my kid champion. I'm going to really do, you know, push my kid to the main event. That it always hurt the house. The houses never did well, and uh, probably the best case I saw of anybody getting success like that was probably Jeff Jarrett, because uh, because he would he's he's a kid that would pay his dues. He was a tough kid, you know. He didn't squawk if you if you potatoed him and you know, stomped him too hard and kicked him around. And I know I went in and worked with him and and uh, his, at his father's request, and I did that deliberately. And, you know, I said, hey, you know, uh, you're going to really pay your dues. You know, I'm here, old Tennessee stud, and, and I'm going to kick living hell out of you, boy. <laughs> and <laughs> and and I, I never got a squawk. I never got one time for that young man to ever say, God, please ease up on me. Oh, please don't hurt me and hit me so hard. And because, uh, it, you know, he was... Uh, I guess he was raised a little better than that by Jerry, and and uh, didn't do it. But but my father made sure of it. He made sure that you boys are going to have tremendous respect, and then you're going to go somewhere else to get your push. You're not going to get it here. And so that's that's the way we we got started, uh, me and Ron, uh, in our wrestling careers. Ron got a little bit of a push because he was six foot ten, weighed two hundred and twenty pounds, and you know, he's a great big guy, and so uh, he got a little bit of a push. But me, I was always uh, the underdog, and and I worked my whole career with that philosophy, underdog, fight your way up from the bottom. And it, it always worked for me. Now, if we could keep yeah. on with the, you know, with the family tie-in here, and obviously another member of your family that was uh, – very popular in the wrestling business and would soon become a tag team partner of yours, especially in the uh, the Continental days. And that was Jimmy Golden. Most people might know him as a uh, bunkhouse buck. But what was it like teaming with your cousin? And, you know, your cousin, to, 
gaining some fame, and you guys becoming a great tag team yourself. Well, we, we both paid the same dues, the dues I just told you about, that uh, Jimmy got no better. Uh, that he, he started off uh, down here in Florida with Eddie and the guys, and there were, he wasn't he wasn't two years from winning his first match that I mean, you know, and, uh, keep your mouth shut, son, do what you're told. Maybe you won't get hurt. And, uh, and when Jimmy and I tagged up, I started doing tag team matches very young. And, uh, we, we kind of fed off of one another, uh, that, uh, that I, I could depend on Jimmy. I knew we had spots. You know, naturally, we had spots that we had between us that we did together, and uh, and things that really worked well at different shows, and uh, and we 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 took care of one another. That Jimmy wasn't going to have any trouble in the dressing room or at a show that I wasn't going to have also, and uh, it was the same thing with me. That you know, I always knew that he didn't tell me, and I didn't tell him, but we just knew it. I just knew, you know, ah, you know, Jimmy's a good guy. I don't mess with him, and uh, and so we kind of had one another's backs, and uh, and we worked a lot of places, a lot of places where you kind of needed to have that support, and uh, you know, back particularly back in the early '70s when we started wrestling, and uh, you know, we we wrestled some guys sometimes that just said, uh, Billy Golden's boy and Buddy Fuller's boy, ah, a couple of silver spoons, son of a guns. And, and we knew it. And we just said, well, you know, guys, we came here to have the best match on the card tonight. And if there's any problem with that, then we'll handle it when it comes down to handling it. That, you know, sometimes it's like Eddie Graham says, your best damn match is the one that don't work. You know that you then then the people get what they came and paid for, and that's the real deal. And uh, you know, and when you get when you don't have any cooperation, and then it's good to have a guy like Jimmy standing with you. He's a tough boy. You know, he's a tough boy. We can always depend on one another. And and then we had a lot of success, a lot of success. Wrestling. As a matter of fact, I was up with Jimmy. What was it? Uh, Last month in Cleveland, Ohio, I went up with him as Buckhouse Buck. So I still work with him as Buckhouse Buck and Colonel Parker. I still still go and manage him even today, and uh, and you know and and worry about him. You know he's sixty years old, so <laughs> I worry. He puts on the Buckhouse Buck outfit, and he looks a lot younger, and looks like he can take care of himself. And so he goes out and he works hard and. We're still going going strong today. You gotta love it. The the stud stable, you know, so to speak, is still around all these yeah. years later. And it's funny that like that kind of went with you guys everywhere. I mean, WCW, the AWA, even now, as you said, I believe, with the uh, AIW promotion in Cleveland. What's it like with yeah. something like that? That kind of like uh, stands the test of time. You guys are the stud stable, basically. You know, thirty years. Ah uh, well, you know you got guys that are proud of it. We had this young boy that was Jimmy's partner up in Cleveland when we were up there, and he had a stud stable T-shirt on. He had cut the bottom of it off, and he had the top on there, and he had his stud stable T-shirt, and he was uh, he was so proud of that. I said, "Ah, be darned, man, that's a heck of a deal." But you know that old stud stable. I know uh, Jerry Jarrett was the one he did the most with that, 
other than we we used it a lot in our territory too as we ran uh, southeastern wrestling out of knoxville and then we went on down to the gulf coast and started continental down there and then stud stable was a big 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 part of our and we we'd gather up the best talent and generally as heels as uh we'd get the best heels and we'd we'd center around i always knew when I was booking, I was running a territory later on in my life, in Continental especially, I, I, I did that stud stable thing with with the frame of mind that that you I couldn't have problems with guys in my territory because if a guy would up and say, ah, I don't like the way I'm doing things here and I'm going to leave, and then another guy would say, well, you're not putting me over enough and I want to do this and I want to do that. Then I always knew. Well, we're a group. We're a, we're a, a company, stud stable, and that we can lose a guy like a football team. You know, we'll lose our tackle, but we'll get another tackle, and uh, we'll go right on running. Nothing will ever change. So, uh, so it helped out with the stud stable and working for Jarrett. Boy, Jarrett just insisted he'd take his he'd take it his best guys that he had. Everybody that was anybody had to be part of the stud stable. And boy, I loved it because it just uh, it gave me a chance to work with a lot of great guys, and it kind of built that that future as Colonel Parker because I was doing all these guys talking. I was I was I was talking for Cactus Jack that today you know Mick Foley's one of the best talkers. He even does a stage act, comedy act that he's doing around. That I remember a time working with with uh, in Memphis with uh, with Jack. And he wouldn't say, he'd say, oh, no, 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 I don't want to say anything. You you do the interview. You do the interview. And, and you know, and I'd have to say, hey, Jack, I need you to say one line, you know, and say it with a little bit of charisma. And it started like that. And then you got a guy, then he goes off to, to Vince McMahon, and, he, and he's three characters. <laughs> and he does all of his talking. And, you know, and, and, and I'm proud to say that I had a lot to do with a lot of guys that were – that were uh, able to do that, uh, you know. So they'd come in, and you know, I'd go to another territory, and the guys would say, "Hey, I got this young kid. He's really good, but he's green. He's no good on the camera. He's, he's no good on the stick. He can't talk." And he said, "I'm going to put him with you." And I'd say, "Well, don't worry about it. When he rides around with me about six months, and you won't be able to shut him up." <laughs> so, <laughs> So that was kind of my legacy, you know, that I I, I I bragged about that. I said, guy has a problem talking, you put him with me, I guarantee you, six months from now you'll have to tell him, shut up, time, it's over. Interview would go on all night long. <laughs> that is absolutely yeah. great. And you think of some of the other guys in, in the stuff table, uh, and, you know, a, guy, a couple guys you were, like, uh, tied to a few times, Arn Anderson, Sid Vicious, yeah, yeah. A lot yeah. Of huge, I gave huge I gave Arn, I gave Arn Anderson his name. I gave a lot of guys their names, but uh, Arn Anderson worked for uh, worked for us in uh, in uh, Gulf down on the Gulf Coast down there. Right before we went to Continental, we were called Southeastern Wrestling on the Gulf Coast, and we we brought him in as Marty Lundy from Rome, Georgia. And uh, I got to looking at him, and I said, you know, I told him, I said, uh, I said, uh, hey, Marty, I said, you, you look like a dadgum Anderson. 
you look like uh, Ole Anderson, and uh, you, you know you, you got that look. I said, I'm going to call you an Anderson. I'm get you a name. Well, Arn, we got got up the name Arn Anderson, and and uh, man, did that click. And then he went off his whole career. Arn Anderson, you wouldn't know it was it wasn't his name wasn't Arn Anderson from the beginning. But uh, but you know, same thing. Then you know, he's same thing. Young guys come in like that, and they say, "Oh gosh, I'm scared to death of the camera." I say, "Well, hell, you know, we'll work on that." And uh, and. Of course, we didn't do any live interviews. I certainly wouldn't put a young guy on like that. But I would just work with him. I'd just say, hey, you know, uh, we're going to cut this thing. Well, I'm scared to death. Well, let's give it a go. And then uh, we'd laugh it off. Oh, gosh, that sucked its butt off. That was the worst dad come interview I ever saw in my life. They were laughing off and everything. And then I'd say, ah, come on, we'll, I'll do the deal with you. And then I'd say, but I need one line out of you. And then you'd go from there until you get a guy that can uh, start to do his own spill and and uh, and wind up doing his own interviews. And so I did a lot, a lot of young guys that came into this business, and they just said, "Hey, we'll put you with Parker. Yeah, you know, put you with Rob." Or I'd do it myself. I'd say, "I'm gonna take this kid on the stud stable. Can do anything in the ring. He just needs support behind the camera if I'm gonna draw any money with him." So anyway, full of crap. I guess I made a lot of money being full of crap. <laughs> I hope I don't bore you on this interview, man, because I'm hard no, to shut not up. At all. You'll finally no. have to shut me down. <laughs> <laughs> now, some other, you know, big names that are part of Stud Stable or, you know, that you've had uh, dealings with, and there's some of the, you know, most legendary names in the business, and some of the names that stick out to me right off the top of the bat, especially from Continental, were the Armstrongs. Yeah, yeah, Bob, 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 and his boys, right? That uh, uh, Bob Armstrong and I, we we were Georgia Tag Team Champions in 1973, working for Jim Barnett uh, in Georgia. My father had sold out, and then uh, Jim Barnett wound up buying Georgia Championship Wrestling, and uh, and and he and Bob and I were wound up being his tag team champions and we traveled together and uh really got to be close got to be real good buddies and and uh after that every place that i went bob went it's just a, you know i just tell bob i'd say well you know i'm going to be finishing up here in a few weeks and i'm going to i'm going up for nick and roy up in nashville and he'd say you think they got an opening <laughs> and I'd hmm. I'd call up there and I'd say, Hey, I got a job. I got the greatest guy you ever seen, Bob Armstrong. You guys would be the luckiest thing ever was to get him and and that 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 just it just worked. And then uh then when we started Continental down on the Gulf Coast, we cut Bob in for an interest in our business, uh, in our office. And uh then down there is where he started his boys, uh, Brad and Steve, uh, uh, down there working uh, in uh, continental wrestling. So I remember watching those boys on their first matches. And uh, times were a little easier then, you know. It wasn't like it was when I started uh, or my dad started or my grandfather started. Those boys got a little bit more of a break. But uh, they were Bob's boys, and Bob raised those boys where they uh, they 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 had some guts. You know, they had a little 
They were tough. They were ready for the business, and so they did real well. And me and Bob, still today, still today, my goodness, man, if I if I get a show and they say, hey, guess who's going to be there? Bob Armstrong. Oh, son of a gun. I say, hell, I'd almost work for free. Hmm. <laughs> I say, man, this is a great deal. I get to go see Bob. This is terrific. I hadn't seen that old son of a gun in six months. And so uh, we're, we're still like that. He's like that, and so am I. And my brother's very close to him. We're almost like brothers. It's uh, Bob's almost like a brother from with me and Ron. We we spent so many years together. And Jimmy, Jimmy, and and the same way about Bob. That he's it's almost like family with us. Great guy. And with Continental. You ended up selling it to, I believe it was David Woods. What was the, you know, what was the deal behind the the sale of the company? Uh, what happened is we were, uh, we we had, we, you know, we started Hulk Hogan, uh, uh, Hogan, uh, Terry Bollet. He had his first, made his first dollar wrestling for us. And uh, and and what was then Southeastern Wrestling, we changed the name. Uh, after we were there about three, four years, we changed the name to Continental Wrestling, went to Birmingham, started doing our TVs. But when we first went there, we were doing our TVs out of uh, uh, Dalton, Alabama, in a little studio there. And we had a we we had Hogan come in and his his half brother, uh, which was Eddie Eddie Bolay, his half brother, and uh, and he went on his Brutus to Barber Beefcakes to New York. And what would happen, every time we'd get a guy, Junkyard Dog, we started him out. We said, so many guys. Every time we'd get a guy and we'd get a little steam going on him, there later in, in the business there, uh, Vince would take him. And he'd write him big contracts and he'd bring them all in. Big John Studd. I, I could go on, if I went on, the guys you wouldn't believe, all the guys that Vince took from us. And uh, at first it wasn't such a bad thing, but uh, but later on, uh, about the time before David, just before David bought, uh, Vince was coming in running our towns. And he would bring in this big, massive bunch of talent, and, and uh, half the guys on the card were guys that that our people knew because he took them from us. And so he would come in, and, and where we would run, say we would run Birmingham on Monday nights, and so we'd run four times a month. Well, Vince would come in on a Monday night against us, get the big building across the street, and, you know, that's three times bigger than our building, and charge $40 a ticket, and, and you know, and have and do great business because he'd bring back all of our best talent and all of our best stuff. And he would take away the money that the people could had to come back to our show next week. See, the people might have sit went to seeing his show, and so we lost them one week. But the point is, they paid four times the price of the ticket of what we charged, and so they didn't have the other three weeks, the other three shows of money to come back the rest of the month. And we started to really suffer, and that Vince would find out that we were that we were selling out one particular town, whether it was Birmingham, Montgomery, Dalton, uh, Mobile, wherever it was, if he heard that, hey, these guys are selling out every week there, then he'd he'd come and run a show. 
And so he started to really run over us, and uh, we saw the writing on the wall that that cable uh, cable ended the NWA, and uh, and it was only going to be WCW out of Atlanta Turner Broadcasting. It was going to be Vince's on the cable for national television. That uh, that it was going to be impossible to continue to run our show, and so we sold out to David Woods, and we it was very timely. That when we sold it out, because when we sold out to David, he only lasted about a year. That uh, he he had the same problems that we had, but he didn't have uh, me and Ron and Bob and Jimmy Golden and you know we he didn't have that crew that base crew because you know when we sold we left, and uh, and so you know David he went on with uh, I think he hired Eddie Gilbert as his booker and. Uh, and and then they brought in some new guys, and it just never gelled. And and if it had a gelled, and they'd have sold out every town, they'd have had Vince all over them. And so we knew that, and we knew that you know the time has just come that I'd be better off at that point rather than playing the big B and trying to, to you know and trying to make all the honey get all the honey, I'd be better off to, to go work for Vince. I could make more money working for him and not have a lot less aggravation than I would handling 20 guys and trying to run a territory. So anyway, that's what came about with Continental Wrestling. But, you know, what's funny is it's really, it's definitely one of those hidden gem promotions that I, I don't think it's the credit that it deserves because there was so much that was done in Continental. Like, you could put it on Monday night or you could put it on a SmackDown show, and it could be just as relevant, just as cutting edge as anything that you're going to see produced in, quote, you know, pro wrestling, sports entertainment now. Um, but yeah. that's what I think yeah. made you guys so different, not to mention that the talent was, you know, on another planet, and you had some great hands coming in and out. But, right. you know, you think about some of those years and so just some of the innovative angles that you were part of and – what sticks right. out to you about what made Continental so different compared to what else was going on in the mid-'80s? Well, uh, you know, I don't want to blow too much smoke up my own rear end or even my brother's, but but I have to a little bit in the fact that uh, that we we were great wrestling writers, that we grew up in the business. Uh, we, we saw our, our grandfather writing his business, and Dad uh, was – excellent at programming his territory six eight weeks ahead of time that uh i was able to ride in a car uh i have a three-hour trip riding here or there and i and i always had a big car big cadillac continental or something because i i hire i haul guys in my car my top boys uh, i wanted to talk with them i wanted to let them know what they were doing six weeks from now I, I, I wanted them to be way ahead so that they could come up with their own ideas that if, if they only know what I'm going to do next Saturday on TV, then they, it's, it, they're limited on the ideas that they can give me. But if I've got them five, six weeks ahead of time, uh, they know what they're doing. They they can add something to next week and add something to that second week and add and you know they're they're always so far ahead and I you know I, I kept my boys that way when I was booking I kept my talent up to my schedule 
and uh, and I always let them know because it it excited them that I could take a guy in and I could say, hey, this is what we're going to do, and it's in, and I'm going to give you an eight week run uh, idea on what we're going to do. In the first week, we're going to do this, and in the second week, we're going to spice it up with this, and then I'm going to bring this guy in and add this thing there, and we're going to do this and a double cross and this thing there, and then I'm going to cut his hair and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and by the time I'm done with the guy, he's looking at me and he's going, "Oh my God, I'm so." I can't believe you're doing this with me. I say, yeah, 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 we're doing it with you because we believe in you, and uh, and and you're going to give us success. You're going to make this all work. You know, you you're the guy for the spot, and uh, and I want you to know two months ahead of time uh, what you're dealing with here because it's it's heavy duty business. And uh, and I'd program and and book my territory like that and handle my talent like that. And uh, even my, you know, I'd have a six-match card, and uh, the the last four matches are in two-month programs. They they know, they they know what they're doing. They don't go to the show uh, having to wonder, well, what am I going to do tonight? They already know. They they already got it in their minds. And and they and, and matter of fact, they I would try to excite them as much as I could about it. So when they get there, they'd say, Rob, on the way here, I was thinking about that thing we were going to do, and and I and and I came up with this great idea, and I'd say, Ah, do my job for me. God bless you. And you know, God say, Ah, oh, boy, we can do this, we can do that. And I'd just say, Oh my gosh, what are they paying me for? <laughs> and you know, yeah, and it, you know, you, if you get if you get on a, a on a, a, a relationship with your talent like that, they'll respect you, they'll work harder for you, and uh, they'll do a better job. It's just the way it is. If I was booking today, if I was booking for Vince McMahon, I'd I'd, I'd want to be the same way. I'd want to say, listen, uh, I don't want to be sitting off here isolated in an office. Uh, I want to be out there, and I want to be in the car, and I want to be at the hotel, and I want to be—I want to be in these guys' ears all the time, all the time. I want to have four, three, four guys with me all the time, and I want to be just blowing smoke up and letting them know, man, you are the best, and this is what I'm going to do. I want you to be excited because you are dynamite, and you and I are going to prove it. And uh, and you know you you get a guy that, that starts to believe in himself, and he and he gets to where his interviews are easy. He don't walk in front of the camera and go, I don't know what to say, because he knows what to say four weeks from now, <laughs> much less Saturday. You see, so it so the business becomes easy and it becomes more fun, and uh, that's that's part of booking. And I think we miss that a lot today. That uh, I, I think they do, uh, you know, they 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 get there to the show and they say, ah, well, let's let's get these guys together and see what we can get. I know they would come to me when I worked in uh, when I was with Jeff Double J up there in New York. That the agent had come to me and he'd say, Rob, oh, you guys are going on fourth, and you're going to be against so and so, and what 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 can we do? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was just like, well, I wonder what in the hell they pay you for, you know. But I'd never say that. But I'd just say, well, well, who's going over? 
well, you guys are going over, but we want to take care of the guy. We want to do this, but we don't want to run anybody in. We don't want to involve anybody else, and we want to in the middle win, but we don't want to hurt him. And so I'd say, well, give me a minute to think about it. And then I'd have that agent coming back in 10 minutes saying, what do you got? And I'd say, well, I'm playing cards. Give me an hour. <laughs> you, know what I'm you know, but I said, but I'm, I'm thinking, I'm sitting there thinking, you guys don't know what you're doing, and you're at the show. <laughs> I say it's really kind of humorous. I say, you know, you, you you got this big business, you're at the show, and you don't even have a finish. You know, wow. you ought to have this worked out for six weeks at least. You know, and exactly. because uh, yeah, we can't get fired up. You know, your your talent they can't get fired up working out their own deal for tonight. They they got to know what's going on, where they're at, what's going on. And I know Vince did it with Steve Austin and some guys that he 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 had them two months ahead of time, and they did the best work. They 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 stole the show every night, and those guys that he did that with. Had great success, so you know I just I did it with everybody, everybody that worked for me. I I just said, heck, man, I just <laughs> yeah. I'd say I'd, I'd have young guy come in work. I mean, Tommy Pritchard come in to go to work for me, and and uh, uh, and he's yeah. His first night's Birmingham, and he works the show, and I and I, and I and I he gets ready to leave. He's in his car, and I say, hey, kid, I'm riding with you. Oh no, no! He's like, I don't want the Booker to be riding with me. It's a three, four-hour trip to Pensacola from Birmingham. I say, ah! He said, I'm not a very good driver. I said, I don't give a damn. If you have a wreck, I'll put on a belt, seat belt. We'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> he said, Oh hell, you know, I, 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 I might want to stop it. Ah, no, no, you're gonna want to go all the way. He said, all right, We're going. I'm gonna ride with you. I'm gonna go with you. And he's thinking, oh, no, the booker, the first night, four hours, what in the world are we going to say? What are we going to do? By the time we get to Pensacola, he's the most relaxed, at-ease kid because he's he's saying, my goodness, you got me figured in, and this is nothing but fun. I say, that's it. That's it. So you go home, and you go get your motel, and you go to sleep tonight, and tomorrow night, realize we're going to have a ton of friggin' fun and make a lot of money. And that's the way the that's, business ought to be run. Yeah, exactly. It's such a it's it's hard to say it's a lost art. It's funny what you said about when you were up at the WWE because, you know, it was so on fire at that point, but we'll get to that uh very shortly, but I just want to touch yeah. on too you mentioned about the interviews of Continental being such a huge part of the show. And it's kind of easy to have some of the best interviews in the business at that point when the man with the golden tongue is the one behind the microphone. And that's the voice, really, of Continental, of all the stuff you'll ever find. The highlights, Gordon Soley, right there front and center. Yep. And obviously, having yep. Gordon Soley as the voice of your television show doesn't really uh, doesn't hurt the product at all. You know what? We, 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 uh, we wouldn't have it any other way. When we went from the small studio in Dothan, and changed the name to Continental, and we had our big back background built for our stage on uh, in Birmingham at the Batwell Auditorium, and we hired Gordon, and we said we're going to do this damn thing big time and right, and uh, and Gordon 
Gordon was our man. Uh, we had worked with Gordon. Uh, I'd worked with Gordon in Atlanta. I'd worked with him down here in Florida. I had great respect for him. He loved my dad. And uh, so we, we just had a real good rapport with Gordon. And, and we we couldn't think of anybody else at that time. We'd add Charlie Platt in because he was our old Dothan boy. But but Dothan, but uh, Gordon was our man, and uh, we had great respect. And he, and he was snappy. He was quick. We could come in and we could just we could lay out our format for him, lay out our show. And what I would do with Gordon, I'd, I'd, I'd do the same thing with him. I'd say, Gordon, you know, we're doing this. But the reason that we're doing it and the reason we really need this emphasis put on this is because next week we're doing this, and then the following week we're going to blow this thing off really big. And Gordon, would just just like that, he'd have it. He'd, go, he'd say, well, goodness gracious, if you're going to do that next week and then you're going to do this thing the following week, why don't you just go ahead with this and that? And then you just say, oh, yes, I, Gordon, you're doing my job, thank God. I don't know why they pay me. <laughs> I say you just—he was that type of guy to work with, a real joy to work with. That, uh, and a great friend, by the way. No, it's it's the best. Like I said, you go back and you can, you know, you find some of these these clips, and just to hear his voice voicing them is just—it's out of this world. It's it's so fantastic yeah. as a fan to watch it. But so it's we the real about deal. You it's... From, yeah, ahead, oh, without ahead. a doubt. No, as I say, we yeah. talked about you promoting it. We talked about the voice behind it. We talked about the people who were involved in it. The wrestlers you mentioned Tom Pritchard. Uh, he sang the praises of Continental when he was on with us. But what's your favorite angle or match or anything that you did during the Continental days? Because, like I said, it's underrated. You got to find it if you can. But what would you consider to be either something you did booking wise or a match you were a part of while you were in Continental? Oh gosh, man! It's so many years. You're looking at uh, twelve, twelve plus years in there. That's a difficult thing. I, you know, I, I, you know, I can I can give you a couple things. Uh, you know that I I, I I I would give it up for my talent with some type of angles that they would see stuff and they'd just go ah outrageous and then i would ask the same thing out of them but i i would do things like uh, uh i had a thing going with jerry stubbs uh a little angle going and uh and uh, and we did a deal where on tv somebody was going to have to shave their head on tv and uh and 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 jerry brought this bowl of stuff in there this gook and he says if i win then i'm going to this on your hair instead of shaving it and your hair's never going to grow back again one of those deals so the deal what i did is i took took nair we did the match and he had his gook in the thing and then and then i wound up almost beating him and we involved some guys and stuff and they took the stuff and they put it on my head and in doing so, they got it in my eyes, so so it's blinding me. So so we went to commercial, and when we went to commercial, I ran into the bathroom, and I had this this nair mixed up in the, in a big cup, and I took it, and I put it all over my hair, all over my hair, and I 
and I just stood there for a little bit. I only got about three minutes for the commercial for this take, and I just start pulling on my hair a little bit, and finally, pap, I can pull out a whole hunk. So I go out on the camera, and I'm, I'm blinded. They blinded me, and I'm screaming in pain. And in my pain, my interview of trying to interview, I can't see. My eyes are stinging so bad. This is what I'm selling. And I pull my hair out completely. At the end of the interview, I had no hair. Hello? Yes, we're Hello? here. Yep. Okay, yep, we're I here. I didn't know if my TV I had no hair. I, on TV, on that interview, as a half-blind guy and stuff, I, I, I pulled all my hair out. Yeah, so right there on TV. And, and, you know, the guys are all watching and they're going, I can't believe you did that. And I say, well, yeah, because I'm going to ask something familiar to that from you one day. <laughs> you know, so, uh, oh boy. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that, uh, you know, that, that we give it up. Like Dad said, you know, I hate to ask you for a hard way. My old man would have had no problem saying, listen, tonight we're going to bust you. And you're going to get some stitches and all. I hate to ask you for that, but uh, believe it or not, I had guys during Continental Days, a couple of guys come to me and say, hey, I want him to hit me tonight. I say, well, you know, whatever it is, it is. And, and so, you know, it's hard for me to come up with, with one angle, one idea, because God knows we did so many of them, uh, things, things that, um, that are just outrageous. And and we were able to to have a great long run because of that. And Continental, you know, cannot be forgotten. Definitely a hidden gem of a league, and definitely you know something that people should go out there and try to seek out for sure. Well, and if you can part, find it, yeah, if you can find it, we did tapes. You know, that's a problem. If we hadn't, my my brother and I would have made a million bucks on tapes, but we were cheap guys. And we would we'd tape over our tapes. We'd we'd use it. We we'd run about four tapes. So we'd we'd use a tape, and then and then we'd have it for the next week to use. Then we'd use another tape. Then we'd have it for the next week. And then after about four weeks, we'd start to reuse those tapes until they got old and were bad quality. And then we'd get rid of them. <laughs> so we didn't wind up keeping any tapes. And so any continental stuff that you see is from somebody who taped it themselves. And and I know there's some stuff out there like that that some people just tape them themselves and they they and you see them because of that. But uh, it, had we have not uh, taped over those tapes and sold them, Vince would have probably paid us a million bucks or more for the darn tapes of Continental. Mm, true. Yeah, we, sh- we shot ourselves in the arm with it. Yeah. Very, very true. And if I could just skip forward a little bit, talking about another uh, you know continental league, if you will, if we can go down into Memphis, Tennessee, and, and talk a little bit about your time there, because obviously Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler, and they had quite a territory of their own there, and you had quite yeah. a run there as well. Yeah, yeah, I did good there. I, I, actually, I started there. I made my first real, really big money working for those guys in 1971. 72 uh, I left uh, Florida believing that everything in wrestling was pretty much real <laughs> you know, I had that problem from my grandpa and my dad and, and being around Eddie anybody who's ever around Eddie Graham gosh man you just oh god you better but you better love your business and you better believe in it and you 
take care of your business and all of this. And I here I head off to Jerry Jarrett booking it for uh, for Nick and Roy up in Memphis, and uh, and he gives me ideas and angles that he wants to do, and I just look at him and I just say, I can't do that. And he would say, Yeah, you can do that. And I was like, No, that's so phony. It just that doesn't doesn't seem real to me. Uh, it's too far. It's going too far. And he'd say, no, it's not going too far, and that you're wrong, and that we're going to sell out the house with this. And so I would go out a little bit apprehensive and do my very best, and I'll be darned, we'd sell out the house with it. So, you know, I did, heck, I got a great name for myself. My 1972, 73, I'm, I'm making 75 grand in the business a year. And back then, that's a hell you buy a Cadillac for seven grand that's an awful lot of money and uh and 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 it was because Jerry Jarrett's thinking was just so outrageous uh some of the angles and some of the stuff that he was having us do and uh and then you know later on uh, I went on and worked for different promoters but I always went back to Jarrett I always went back to him and I, even back in the 90s, the late 80s and into the 90s, because I, I, any time that I said, ah, things are getting a little stale, I'd call Jerry. And I'd go to go back and work for him because uh, he uh, he changed my way of thinking. You know, I realized that, that you know, this business is it's, 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 it's not like Eddie and Dad and those guys were thinking so much that it's good to keep it real. But uh, but I, I I like doing these wild angles and these crazy ideas. I, I enjoy doing them. And uh, when when I ran Continental, I ran it the same way. That I would do things that I'm sure Eddie and Dad would have said, Ah, you're doing nothing but killing the business. I'd say, Well, in killing the business, I'm selling out every one of my towns six nights a week. <laughs> so you you tell me how that's killing anything, and then I'll. We'll talk about that later, but we're filling our pockets with money. And by the way, you guys are down there, and you're not doing so well with your wrestling. You know, go in there, and my dad said, go in there and take a halt, you know, and sell a halt. And say, well, you know what? You know, a little bit of that goes a long ways. And uh, my dad, he'd say, well, hell, you know, you got to take care of your business. i say, well, you know, these... You know, these hot angles and good ideas and outrageous uh, ideas, uh, that was what we were really getting in there working for Jarrett in Memphis. And, and that was Memphis' Memphis legacy. Was, uh, it, was, it was crazy. It was wild. It was nuts. <laughs> and, uh, hmm. and I learned I learned a book there. I, I learned a book there. I learned that, uh, hey, you know, you don't need to just look down a roll of toilet paper and try to see the world that you need to throw that dadgum roll of toilet paper away and 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 really see the world see see the ideas that are out there and the stuff that you can do and let's keep it interesting let's keep it crazy you know but real but as real as you can because if people don't believe it they're not going to buy it they're not going to come and you we never sold a ticket to anybody that didn't pretty pretty much try to believe what we were doing you know, so in Memphis, uh, it was a, uh, it was, it was crazy. It was crazy. Jerry Lawler and I made a lot of money back in the '70s together, working against one another. I didn't like him, 
and he didn't particularly like me. And as a matter of fact, he was over so good. He went he went in with Jarrett and told Jarrett one time I, I'm a, when we were selling out he and I everything I, that he didn't want to work with me anymore because uh, I was crowding him. I, I wouldn't you know I wouldn't let him call the match stuff. I was crowding him. I, they were putting him over every night, and uh, and I realized why they were doing it, particularly now. Because he was he was their winning racehorse, and he sold out their house as their big heel. But I I wanted more of a push, and he was standing in the way, and so I would work with him really stiff. And hmm. uh, and, and, and 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 today we're the greatest friends. My gosh, you know I just love Jerry Lawler, and I have tremendous respect for him. But there's a time back in the '70s that I I was I was very very. Uh, mean to him and uh i was wicked to him <laughs> i just i was a hell of a wrestler and he was a good showman but he didn't know crap about wrestling and uh and i would try to stuff it up him when i could and i was wrong i was wrong i learned that working that territory memphis is definitely you know known that like you said for some craziness and some crazy angles and obviously Jerry Lawler had a ton of, you know, crazy angles involved with Memphis. And then obviously you worked with a guy like Bill Dundee and, and Brickhouse Brown. And then again, yeah. you worked for uh, Jerry Jarrett in the USWA. And then you ended up working with his son yet again and Jeff. So what was right. it like almost to just keep working with the Jarretts and then working with the, you know, the second or third generation? Uh, it was great. It it was great when when I went in to work with Jeff in the eighties, and he just a young fella and he had long Lancelot hair and real small kid and all. And Jerry's trying to give him a push, but he's not really getting over because the guys not co- guys aren't cooperating with him very much. Uh, and Jerry asked me would I come in there and work with him, and uh, I worked a year program with him. I worked for with nobody for a year but Jeff every night. Every TV, everything, Jerry angled it that way, and uh, and and I gave him no easy walk. I told you earlier when I was talking, I I, I gave him no easy way out. That I I uh, I hit him too hard, kicked him too hard, and and pushed him too hard, and never got one gripe one time. And as a matter of fact, uh, he'd give it back to me, and so we, we were having good matches. And uh, that that philosophy, uh, Jarrett was trying to sell with him. He's a sales. He's a seller. The kid's a seller, and he was a great. He was boy. He could get the people right on the edge of their seat selling. And boy, he'd bleed or he'd do whatever was necessary. And I would just beat the cold hell out of him. I mean, I'd, I'd really, really get the people involved with with saying, "Have mercy on him." And then I'd put him over sometime, and uh, and it was you know it was surprising to people, but but I did it in a way where it was believable, where where he actually uh, I slipped on a banana peel and he beat me, you know, and I was bigger and I was meaner and I was tougher, but his his just just his will to win to keep fighting to keep going. And so, uh, so Jarrett, in his wild angling and his ideas and stuff, he just kept that fire burning all the time between me and Jeff, and me saying, well, you know, it's going to come down to me. I'm going to kill this kid. <laughs> 
you know, just right out. I'm just going to, you know, that Jerry Jarrett, you, you're a nut. You know, you you should keep this kid away from me because I'm going to one night I'm going to kill him. And, uh, and you know, we had we had people pretty well believing that the boy was in serious danger. <laughs> and then hmm. and then I wasn't too too much uh, above where I wouldn't put him over because in the given time, then I would. I'd say, hey, it's the time the kid gets a win. They keep the angle going. And so I, I, I had a great respect for the Jarrett's. And I, I just love Jeff. Uh, he's he's like a brother to me. I, you know, anytime I, I saw Jeff and Winston-Salem back here a couple months ago at the big convention that they have there for autographs and such, and we sat down and had a few drinks and just had the best time. That uh, made my night. And it's very cool that, you know, in the USWA, you kind of went full circle with uh, Jeff, and you were able to team with them and win the tag titles and stuff. And then yeah, again, yeah. in the WWF, you were able to be, you know, Tennessee Lee, be Jeff's manager. I've, I got so lucky. I've I got to tell you, there's a couple of things that happened to me that was so lucky. I guess back uh, about, uh, about 90, about 1990, I decided, uh, you know what, my brother owned a hockey team up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, Cincinnati Cyclones, and I decided I may have had enough of wrestling. So I moved to Knoxville, and I took a marketing salesman job for his hockey team in Cincinnati. And so I would work three days in Cincinnati in marketing sales, selling uh, ads and stuff for the hockey team. And then Smoky Mountain Wrestling with Jim Cornette, and then we're going in Knoxville. So, so I started. I said, "Well, I can't get away from wrestling." That me and Jimmy started doing a tag team with the Rock and Roll Express for the Smoky Mountain Wrestling circuit. And so I, so I, I wound up then wrestling three or four days a week, and then I would work three days a week for the hockey team. And I, I was thinking about giving up wrestling, but but I couldn't. It just, I just had somebody come and hire me. Oh, I'll pay you the money. I'll give you better money than you're making doing the hockey. You come on and do work for me. So, so I'm doing that. And then Sid Udi, Sid Vicious, gives me a call uh, from from West Memphis, and he says, Hey, how would you like to go to Atlanta with me and do uh, Colonel Parker thing? And, uh, you know, you'd be a colonel and you put on a white suit and you talk fog horn, leg horn, and you get an accent and all of this stuff. And I say, ah, that sounds really good, man. So so uh, I go with Sid and wind up spending seven of the best years in all of my life working in there just, just as Colonel Parker. And then when I finish up there in 97, I come down here to Tampa, and again I say, you know what? I'm retiring. I'm quitting. I'm just gonna. I'm not doing anything. I'm just gonna retire. I've saved my money. I've done well. And I'm just gonna quit. And and uh, and I'll be darn man. Here, here they come and call me from New York, and they say that Jeff Jarrett sent in this this idea uh, that he wrote this idea and he mailed it to us and all of this, and that he would like you to be a character to come in and manage him as the greatest singer and the greatest star and all this stuff. 
And I just say, well, I'll be darned. I can't get away from it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I say, so they say, well, you know, WCW and you, Colonel Parker, and you got all that background there. But he said, we'll do the Colonel Parker deal, but we'll switch your name to Tennessee Lee, and you'll come in. You'll get to run with Jeff. And and uh, so I got about a eight month run with Jeff in there, and then they decided to go with a girl. With the girl, they they had uh, the the girl come in, and she said, I forget her name. Uh, uh, she was in WCW, and her husband was in the wrestling. I forget his name, too, a football player. Oh, it's Deborah uh, McMichael and uh, De- Steve Longo De- McMichael. Yep. Right, right. Was, yeah, she was in there with McMichael. And uh, and um, so anyway, so, so uh, you know, I, I guess Jeff and her had some type of thing going on, and and uh, besides that, they were ready to start this strong woman thing where they were going to use more girls and they were going to do all of this. And, and and Vince came in, he talked with me, he said, we're moving you into the office. And I just looked at him and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I was like, mm-hmm. no, you don't realize where I'm at in this in the world right now, that I'm, I'm tired of that. I'm not going to sit in your office and then get up and go to the shows and catch another airplane and another airplane and then go back to Connecticut and sit in your office. And it just said, I just said, gosh, the guys that were there, uh, uh, Jerry Briscoe, great friend of mine, and, and Bruce uh, Pritchard, Tommy's brother, and all of them were there. They said, Rob, for God's sake, come on in, join us. I mean, man, you come in, you make a ton of money and everything would be wonderful. And I, they couldn't believe it. I just said, no, no, I'm quitting. I'm quitting. And that was it. You know, I work these little shows now and again, and and uh, and I go do these autograph things sometimes. But but I, just, I, I said, that's the end of it right then, man. I said, I'm just not going to do any more. I, I, I can't take this life anymore. It's just too crazy. It's too hard. And I was, they, were, they were firing, uh, they were letting Jim Cornette go. And Vince had told me, he said, well, you know, we want some new ideas that uh, Jim Cornette's been in there and he's old school and old ideas. And I just looked at him and I just thought, where in the hell do you think I'm at? (laughs) I'm the old school, old idea master, you know, that, that, you know, Jim Cornette, keep him, (laughs) you know, you don't. You don't want to hire me in Jim Cornette's place. Just keep him. You got a good guy there. Go ahead and work with him. Go ahead and make things happen with it. But, but, uh, but going back to what you're saying about Jeff, that uh, that I had guys that I did things for, that just did things for me later on in life, and I just wound up getting seven years as Colonel Parker, the best, most fun I ever had in the business. Less work, most money, most fun. And then I figure, well, I'm done, that's it. And then here comes Jeff along with this idea, and I'm off to New York. And I say, well, I'll be darn. I can't get away from this. No way, no how. <laughs> <laughs> that's a wonderful career, isn't it? <laughs> crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's but, crazy, man. Yep. But, you know, it's crazy. You said the best time, you know, or the most fun you had was in WCW doing the Colonel Robert Parker gimmick, and obviously you know that's like the the Tom Parker Elvis Presley kind of thing, and then you kind of made it your own with the the trademark the, the sanding during the match. But you know, what did you feel about that gimmick? Did you really enjoy playing that gimmick? Because it seems like you did. Oh yeah, good gosh! The, the first night I went in, um, I went in to do the TV. Sid, I was going to tease 
a few weeks for Sid to come in. I got this guy, and I'm bringing in this guy. And we did Van Hammer, who was one of the first guys that we did the thing, and I went out, and he grabbed hold of my suit and pulled on my suit, and I said, oh, son, nobody ever touches me. Man puts his hands on me. It's his left. And I, and I, and I, and I go call Sid up, and Sid says, and I say, how's that? And he goes, Rob. He said, you're doing, he said, man, this is foghorn leghorn. He said, so I got to go back to school then. I go back and I get me some foghorn leghorn tapes and I get me some Mark Twain, a couple of Mark Twain books so I can get quotes and stuff out of the thing. And I say, all right. I say, here we go, buddy, because when I go to TV next week, I'm foghorn leghorn and we're going to do it a little bit different, you know. And I said, he said, he said uh, Sid was saying, he said, I don't want anybody to recognize you. I don't, I don't want them to even know. I want them to see you in the white suit and white hat and hear the, the, the lingo and say, that guy looks familiar, but I don't know who he is. Well, that's what I did, and I, I did that for seven years, just trying to trick the public that I'm actually another character altogether. And in doing Colonel Parker, after years and years, I got very normal Going as a matter of fact, the, the apartment that I lived in, and you know, and I'd go out, and people thought I was crazy because <laughs> I I never <laughs> lost a, I never lost a character. And then I'd go in and, and put on the white suit, and white tie, get out the cigar, and the character would be twice as it'd, it'd just take me over, take me over, and I just I didn't I, it was the easiest work I ever did in my life. I just went out and did what I do well, is speak. And I had the ultimate stud stable, <laughs> you know, because here's here's Turner Broadcasting that's going to buy me anybody, even buy me uh, Ming, uh, King Haku, for a bodyguard that does hmm. nothing for two years but follow me around and make sure nobody hits me or anything. And I have to tell Ming 15 times a night, hey, this is not real. You know, Ming's over there, and he, he's coming over to me. He's going, oh, Mr. Parker, please don't get to me. I said, get away from me, boy. <laughs> I, talk. I said, man. He's like, well, I, you make me nervous when you get out. I say, hey, you know, hell, man, you get you get with it. This is this wrestling business. Nobody's going to hurt me. Well, I just worry. I don't want to be bodyguard and somebody hurt you or something. Oh. So he takes his job so seriously and, and – um, Oh gosh, really a great bunch of years. I'll tell you a funny story about uh, about uh, Haku, uh, about Ming. You know him? Do you know who I'm talking about? Oh yeah, oh, oh, yeah. my bodyguard. <laughs> yep. Oh yeah. 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 You, you know, you know who I'm talking about. Oh gosh, I'll tell you the funniest thing. We we did we do we did war games, and uh, it was the Nasty Boys and Dusty against. Terry Funk and Monkhouse Buck, my boys, and I'm on the outside of the cage, and they've got this cage. And the deal is, if they beat all of my guys, and 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 then my guys have to leave elimination every time they beat. If they beat all of them, then I have to go in the cage. Then Colonel Parker has to go in the cage, and that's the old war games deal. And 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 um, and we go in, and uh, and of course in the 
finish of the match, I'm going to have to go in, and, and Dusty's going to put the figure four on me, and the nasty boys take turns dropping elbows on me, and they're they're pounding me to death. And uh, and and they are, and they lock the cage, and Ming's on the outside, and he can't get in, and he's just hanging on the side of the cage like a monkey, and the whole cage is just rocking back and forth, going crazy, and Dusty's got the figure four, and they are just killing me, and finally they beat me. And I'm laying there in my white suit, and I'm just. And Ming comes in, and he's so serious, and he gets he gets right down in my face, and he says, he says, "Up, oh, eye to eye." His eyes are like three inches from mine, and he and he says, "Oh, Mr. Pucker," <laughs> he says, "Oh God, are you okay?" He looks at me, and I, and I open my eyes, and I'm just right in his eyes like that, and I say, "No, Ming." I shit my pants. <laughs> he, just, he, just, he just cracks up laughing because, you know, you're eye to eye. And, he said, and then I tell him, you big dumb, don't you laugh. Don't you laugh. You know, I tell him because this is not a funny moment. You know, he, he just cracked up. He just he couldn't stand it. We were so close. We were like lovers. You know how you get with your girlfriend. You're just right eye to eye, ready to kiss. And we're just that close, and I just say, no, Ming, oh, I should. Anyway, anyway, after that, we go back in the dressing room, and they want to have Ming go to their dressing room, bash in the door, and just destroy them all. And, uh, and so, boy, we go and do that. And, man, I mean, they got bloody mouth and bloody nose, and, I mean, Ming just goes in there and kills them. And I'm just like, this is real. <laughs> this is real, man. I can't believe it. But Ming took his job so serious. He was like, he was like, uh, oh, you did. You, I'm a bodyguard, and you took my man. And you did this to him, and now I'm going. And he just went in there and that's, if you were, if you were at the show, and you saw the nasty boys and Dusty and them come out of there, and you would say, hey, gosh, Monty, did he? Is he shooting? What's he doing? You know. <laughs> He went in there and killed them. Oh, yeah, all that karate stuff and the kicks and the stuff and the things that tore the thing, the garbage cans and the stuff all over top of them. And, oh, gosh, it was more fun being there and doing that and having those guys, working with guys like like a bunkhouse partners with Terry Funk. And, you know, oh, just, just great stuff. And working with Steve Austin. Oh man, that was just uh, we, me and Steve had so much fun. We had so you know I, I managed Steve for about a year and a half before he went to New York, and we just had, you know, that was just the greatest thing. Sid had his problem with Arn in in England, and wound up stabbing him with some scissors, and they fired Sid, and and then uh, Bischoff came and talked to me, and he says, "Hey Rob, he says, you know, you're not going to leave me, are you?" I say, "What?" He's like, well, you know, Sid, we fired Sid, and we're just worried. That I said, quit worrying. I said, hell, you know, Sid's all right, but we ain't in love. I said, hell. <laughs> I said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up my job for Sid. No freaking way in this world. He said, well, we're going to put you with Steve Austin, and then we did that deal with the Hollywood Blondes, and uh, and the chicken deal with me and Brian Pillman, and uh Gosh, that thing! That thing drew them the biggest ratings they'd had in 15 years. It was it it was it was outrageous that uh, that that um, Clash of Champions 
where I wrestled Pillman, and the losers got to come on TV the next Saturday and put on the, the chicken suit. That was one of the biggest ratings that they ever had with Turner Broadcasting. That I was I was riding high, brother. Absolutely, I remember that quite yeah. well. And that was a oh, ton of fun, but I was riding like high, the... and it was it, it was so much fun. Steve Steve put on my hat, and you know, and he, he dressed up in his close as he could to Colonel Parker, and he, he did my Colonel Parker interview, <laughs> and he did my Colonel Parker stick. <laughs> You know, where he, I turned around, it was like a cartoon, and I jump over here, and then, then me and Steve run into one another. The thing is, we kind of, oh, it was funny as heck. It was, it was it, that was the best years. That was the best years. And then me and then me and Steve got got teamed up and uh, and just went right on having a ton of fun, man. Imagine me doing Steve Austin's interview. <laughs> you would say, hey, let him talk. I'd say, ah, hell, Steve would say, ah, that's what they pay Colonel for. Let him talk. <laughs> say, well, okay, there we are. So, yeah, it's just, just that's great years, great years, Colonel Parker. Without a yeah. doubt. And with uh, the the chickens here, it's almost like you were uh, five horn leghorn once again, which is kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was a big. Everybody was running around at the shows with the KFC boxes. I, you know, KFC should have sent me money. I know chicken was selling better around Atlanta because uh, we'd go to those shows and there'd be dead gum. There'd be five hundred bu- those big round pails of uh, KFC boxes and people shaking the boxes <laughs> and all the stuff. And then that's always my deal. I ain't no chicken farmer. I'm a cattle man. I do it. You know, I have a fit about the chicken and the stuff and all, and uh, putting on the chicken suit, and then it didn't, uh, and then after uh, Steve, then going on with the Sherry thing that me and and scary Sherry, goodness gracious, man, did we have a run? That that thing was great. We we spent almost two years working with the scary Sherry deal. So that was great that, because. Uh, Bunkhouse Buck and, and Thirty Days Slater against the Harlem Heat, and then you and her having uh, like the fling, but you know, a few yeah. at first and then a fling, and then you guys are put together. Yeah, Very right down stuff. to the wedding, right down to the wedding, and right down to the to to. Uh, then we did the wedding, and then Medusa. They were introducing Medusa, and so we brought Medusa in, and they had the big fight after the wedding, and then I've got the little love fest going between her and Medusa, and. And uh, it was a great thing. I wound up uh, wound up having one of the his, you know they you know, they have their little wrestling history, the best ten matches or whatever of all of history thing. That me and Medusa, me wrestling Medusa is like number five of one of the top ten wrestling matches on all of history. So yeah, I wrestled her on a pay per view and and uh, WCW as Colonel Parker against her. And uh, let her do all her dead gum acrobat and bull crap and catch her when she would have killed herself. And, <laughs> you know, yeah, just it just it was just so so many so many wonderful opportunities and things I had to do to work with so many great people and uh, and 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 have so much fun doing it and make so much money. Good Lord, man, money was pretty easy to make back in those days. Yeah. Definitely, WCW was riding high. But did you 
like working with the women? Because, I mean, you wrestled Cherry, and obviously you did the thing there, and you wrestled Medusa. But did you mind getting in there and wrestling with the women? Uh, I I never had to have a a single match with Sherry. Uh, I was always Harlem Heat, and then her, and me, and Buck, and and, and Terry, Terry Funk, or something to where I would have interaction with her in the ring, but not like the Medusa match. The Medusa match, I had to go in and work the whole match with her. But 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 Medusa's one heck of a worker. I mean, she is really really good in the ring, and uh, and and we put a lot of thought into what we would do in our match, and uh, and and uh, when we started, when we first we we were on the loop and worked against one another. When we first started, she had little respect for men. You know, she'd she'd kick me as hard as she could, and she would just, you know, she was she was a real terror. But I would tell her now, when uh, you you do all the stuff you want to do, but when it's time to get some heat, I'm going to beat you up a little bit. Hello, yep. hello, phone yep. wore out. Hello, still got you. Hello, yeah, I I don't know if my phone wore out. Oh no, nope, still there. Yeah, I guess it's still good. But she she would uh, yeah she she would she, you know she uh, I'd tell her listen I'm going to suplex you I'm going to stand up suplex you I'm going to do some stuff to you and uh, and she'd say well okay and so then I'd just treat her like a guy just like one of the guys and uh, and after about three matches she said Colonel yeah you think we could leave this off and leave that off. <laughs> We got we got more respect. She got more respect for uh, what it you know what it was like to wrestle the boys. You know to be with the guys that that I I said well you know put it to me give me everything you got and even if it hurts I don't care. But uh, when I start to get my heat I'm gonna hurt you a little bit because uh, that's what we're gonna do. <laughs> and hmm. after about three matches she was like oh please don't hurt me like that. I was like well you know. Then you know, well, let's try to work better in the ring, and you don't have to kick my guts out, and I won't suplex you, and we'll try to just uh, have a different type of match. We'll work with one another for a change, <laughs> and uh, so, so uh, we we did well together, and so working with her it was okay. It was okay. You know, I'm not too big to for this business to realize that the business is, is what it is, and that uh, I'd even put her over. You know, I'd get a good finish where I beat myself, but uh, yeah, I'd had no problems. I'd even put her over. She's, uh, you know, she's now a WWE Hall of Famer, so she finally got the the just due that she deserved. But definitely a lot of respect to her. And that feud with you and her is very memorable and very fun. But you know, we talked about Sherry Martell. Did you, you know, did you enjoy working with Sherry? Because you know, she has a reputation herself of being a little crazy. Ah, real crazy. Goodness <laughs> gracious. Uh, you know, not so much the the wrestling part, the the uh, the interaction, interviews, the stuff that we did. Uh the, the night we got married in Las Vegas that we did the marriage thing. Uh, this this is a great this kind of sums up the whole thing with me and Sherry that uh that I'd been through a lot with Sherry, and we're here. We come down to the wedding, and now we're at the little white chapel, and they got the the, the, the trailers out there, and we're in the trailers, and the, and it's we're ready to do the shooting, and Sherry's not there, 
and she's not there, and she's not there. And then finally, you know, they say, oh, gosh. And then she shows up last second, and she is stoned to the <laughs> so they come, So they come to me, and they say, uh, and they say, have you seen Sherry? And I say, no, is she here? And they say, well, she's here, but she's not here. They said, we can't do it. And I said, what do you mean you can't do it? And they said, she's drunk. She's she's filled up or something. She's drunk. And I say, oh, let me see her. And I go over and she goes, (laughs) and I say, boys. I say, this is magic. <laughs> they go, oh, gosh. I say, you roll it. And I say, Sherry, don't say nothing. Just, I don't to say what I want to. I say, say anything you want to, honey. <laughs> they say, she's drunk. I say, that's beautiful. That's a piece of work, boys. I say, roll that darn camera. I'll do the talking. So we're gonna do this damn thing. We're gonna get out here. We're gonna we're gonna have the best dang wedding night anybody ever had, and we did. And we went out and Sherry, just that was Sherry. We were just stoned as a gourd, you know. She, <laughs> I said, oh gosh. At the end of the night, we looked back on it, man. My little fried pie was about fried pied, man. <laughs> she, <laughs> she was a mess. But uh, but we worked well together, and I didn't care. I went. And I said, I said, heck, that's the character. That's who she is. If I get there and she's a little bit looped, you know, I'll go talk with her, and I could make sense with her. She would listen to me. She liked me, and I'd say, now, now you know, Cherry, that you got big heat tonight. I don't care. I said, well, I know, I know you don't care, but I do, honey, because I, I love you, and I don't want to see see a bad thing happen to you or nothing. I said, you let me do the talking. Well, okay. I said, just let me do the talking. If you want to work something in, work it in. But let, let me do this. Let me lead this deal. And she'd go out and we'd make it happen. <laughs> so she was a, she was kind of a fire. You never knew what she was going to get. It's like a box of chocolates, man. <clears throat> Sherry, you never knew what she was going to get. Mm. But I... But but I loved working with her. She I, I, I had a seventh story apartment, and she would come to visit me, come talk about her angles and talk about her stuff. And we lived in the same place, the park in Atlanta, and I and and I had a balcony there. And she'd come over, and she'd I'd, I'd hide my Crown Royal. She'd come in, she'd take a bottle of Crown Royal, no ice, no Coke, no nothing, pour a glass full of it, and start drinking it like water, and go out on my balcony and sit on my top of my balcony, seven stories high, and just, ah, I'm on. I'd say, oh, God, sure, please, please, don't leave me alone, I'm all right. And I said, well, you know, if she falls, we'll just call the ambulance because <laughs> I can't get her down. And so I got to where she'd call, I'm going to come up and see you. I'd say, well, give me about 10 minutes, and I'd go hide all my all my booze, particularly my Crown Royal because it was her favorite. And I'd, I'd go put all that stuff away, and I'd say, oh, gosh, just try to get here and get get through this visit. <laughs> she was a great girl. I miss her. Oh yeah, she's so mem- yes, so memorable. And I'm I'm sorry, John. I was gonna say so memorable, and you know the chemistry between the two of you. 
are just, it was just off the charts. But that talent pool in WCW is obviously something that was beyond, you know, you can't compute it these days, the amount of people that were on the roster at one point. And the management, obviously, we've heard about WCW and that, you know, you didn't know who was in charge one night or you didn't know what was going on. What did you think about WCW at that point? I know you said it was a lot of fun, but was it a little hectic at times with run sheets not being there on time and maybe doing things on the fly? Uh, what, what, what regard? Who, Sherry or who? who, who Just in mean? terms of WCW overall at that point. You know what? It was it's kind of a crazy thing. You know, I worked in their office there. Uh, me and Bill Dundee and Greg Gagne and uh, Mike Graham and Tony Schiavone. We were the writers. We were a committee, the booking committee. And uh, and also Jim Barnett was a sit-in sometimes on part of that. And then uh, Eric Bischoff was the head man then. And, and we'd run all of our ideas and stuff past him. Uh, when I worked there, we programmed our stuff the way I like to do it uh, a couple of months ahead of time uh, because we had to get our TVs in order for to be way ahead of time. But uh, but it was kind of tough because you you'd have an idea for a guy and and have something that I really believed in, and I would say. Uh, 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 you know, let's go. This uh, one, one, one uh, example. Uh, Johnny B. Bad had been in Atlanta for a long time working there, and his character wasn't getting over, and he wasn't doing him any good. So they wanted to maybe switch him babyface or something, and they wanted to uh, to do. It. So I, 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 I sat down with him, and I said, "Well, we got to, we got to get the people to to find a heart for him. That he's the type of character." that they're not going to find a heart for him. They're not going to love him. They're not going to care whether he wins or loses. It's his problem now. Nobody gives a damn. But let's, let's first of all, let's work an angle and shave his head <laughs> so he's not Johnny B. Bad anymore. He's Johnny B. Bad, but he's, he's bald-headed. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, and that, and you know, and, and they're all saying, "Well, I kind of like that." I say, "Well, you need to like it because if I can't get people to find sympathy for him, if if I can't get some sympathy in his character, if I can't get people to to, he's not riding high anymore. He's down low as a man can get, and that the average man can get down with him low." And they can get to where they see his plight. They can see his his dilemma and his heartbreak, all the bad things that's happened to him. Because I've got a line of them, and so they that they, they say, you know what, Rob, that'll work. And I say, well, let's start it. Let's do it. And so they go like Gandhi goes, and he talks to to Johnny B. Bad about it, and. Uh, and, and Johnny B. Bad says, "Oh no, no, no! I won't shave my head. I won't do. I won't do any of this." Well, uh, you know, then they come to me and they say, "No, no, no!" He says he won't do it. He won't. He, and I say, "Who's running this damn place?" I said, "Now, now who's the who, who's the bookers? Why do we sit here in this room and draw these ideas up that you know that I need to talk to him myself, and that when I talk to him, I'll sell this to him, and if I don't sell it to him, then he ain't never going to draw you a quarter. Fire him. Get rid of him. And uh, and and so they say, oh, 
you know, you, you, you'll just upset him and you'll just think, and I, and I just get up and I, it's famous. I did a, uh, uh, a guest booker and it's on the back of my carton for the guest booker. I get up and I look at these guys. I've been in working for the office almost a year. I've been in the office and I said, boys, baby's got a pot roast on. <laughs> and they said, what? And I said, I'm out of here. And they said, where are you going? I said, baby's got a pot roast on. And I went out the door and never went back. <laughs> and they, Bischoff, had, he had raised my contract. He gave me a new contract for booking and, and working in the office. And I just, and I never told him, never said a word to him. I just never went back. And after about three weeks, you know, they're, they're all they're all asking me, when are you going to do, what are you just, when are you going to come back to the office? When you come back, I say, hey, boys. You see the writing on the wall. I'm Colonel Parker. You know that's all I'm going to do. I'm, I'm not. I don't work in the office anymore. <laughs> Say, I said, you know this this uh, committee booking that you guys are doing. That uh, it absolutely sucks. You know, I said, hell, I sit down and do my television in an hour's time, and 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 then I I, I get in the car, ride with my boys on a three-hour trip, and everybody knows what we're doing and what we're going to do, and I don't run into any problems. I don't have any crap. I come in here for this booking that you guys do, committee booking, and I'm in here for seven hours. And and at the end of the day, well, he can't do that. Well, he don't like that. Well, somebody at the office said nothing, and then, and then uh, seven hours of work, nothing gets done. And I say, guys, I ain't used to this, and I ain't going to do it. I say, it's, this is not the way that uh, business is done, that uh, this committee booking thing. That, that's the reason when Vince come talk to me and say, we're moving you into the office, that's the same way I felt then. I said, you're going to move me into a committee room with 10 people sitting around the friggin' table and then me having an idea that somebody says that might work and then four guys over here saying I don't believe that's going to oh gosh and then we just don't get anything done we just all pull at one another and we 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 never get anything done and I say man I just like Dothan like booking TV I said I'll come in here I'll book your dad gum 5 weeks of TV in an hour and a half Lay it on your table and say, "Now I'll go talk to the boys and we'll put this on tape, <laughs> and and we'll get it done." And I said, "And we don't need all this bull crap." And they said, "Well, but this is the way we do it." I said, "Well, then, uh, baby's got a pot roast on. Good day." <laughs> I say, uh, "I said because you know what? I'm not rich, but I got enough money where I don't have to worry about this crap." I said, "Man, I'm life ain't like this." This is not the way you do it, boys. And so uh, it wasn't long after that old Colonel Parker stayed there after I left that office. I was there about three and a half, four more years, and all those bookers were all fired. <laughs> Ganya, Graham, uh, Bill Dundee, everybody but Tony Schiavone, and he was the TV guy, so they kept him. But everybody else was fired, and old Colonel Parker was still there. And if I'd have stayed in that office... With that group of guys, Colonel Parker would have been gone. I'd have been fired with him. You know, time would have just got each and every one of us. And I saw it, and I said, you know what? I ain't going to be a part of this dadgum loser crap, that we can't get stuff done. Uh, this is not the way I've been taught to book. And, and you know, I 
to my boys. And, you know, a guy always had the right to say, well, I got my differences about that. And I say, well, what are they? Convince me of it. You know, convince me of it, that I'm wrong. Convince me. And if you can, then you won. And we'll do something else. But otherwise, come Saturday, 3 o'clock TV, you're going to do exactly what I tell you and like it. (laughs) Yeah, because that's the way we do. That's the way we do. Yeah, so, uh, heck, otherwise, why are you Booker? You know, if they call you out to be the ideas man, and then you got everybody else's ideas and nothing's working, they don't even know who to come to. You say, well, that's his idea, his idea, his idea. No, 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 it it comes down to the buck stops right here. And so if you're going to call me the booker, I'm the one. The house isn't there. The crowd doesn't come. You know who to come see. You know, don't go see my main event and say they're the problem. Come see me and say, what in the world are you doing? I say, well, you know, I'm going to give you success, and if you don't want success, then... I'll go home and eat the pot roast. (laughs) 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 That's it. That's it. That's the way the business ought to work. And it doesn't take 15 guys sitting at a table to get it done. You need one guy that, and you put all of your hope and all your faith in him, and he, he gives you results. If he doesn't, you get rid of him, and you hire somebody else that you think can. And it, and the buck stops right there. And that's the way that it is, you know. I, it's 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 not a team effort. The team is in your talent, and then you got the coach. And you don't have five coaches. <laughs> you got one coach, and you got a team. And uh, that's the way that's the way I like to play the wrestling business. And I think that's the way it works. It worked that way with Jerry Jarrett. It worked that way with Bill Watts. Everybody I ever worked with, Eddie Graham. There was a guy, and you answered to him. And uh, and he gave you the ideas. You know, try to get you fired up about it. Try to make you like it. Try to make you sit on the edge of your seat and say, I can't wait to television because I'm going to kill them. And when I get a guy feeling like that, we're going to make money. Absolutely. That's such a great point. I mean, you know, you've such a great mind for the business. And as we wind it down a bit here, I just want to talk about, you know, a great thing in your career, which was, you know, apart from the managing side, it was also the wrestling side. And did you have a favorite match or maybe matches in your career? Was it, a, you know, a War Games type thing where you're saying you had that awesome moment, that funny, funny story? Or was it something else that really sticks out as your favorite? You know, funny, funny stuff uh, is all right. You know, like I was telling you about me, but those serious moments that uh, – when we had Southeastern Wrestling going, we had a deal where my, my brother was gonna was gonna work with Dory, with Dory Funk, for a world's championship. And we had the people in Knoxville, that area, thinking that Ron was the next world's champion. It was so. so we had this big tournament to to decide who was going to work with Dory when he came in town. And so Terry joined the tournament. Terry Funk and Terry said, you know, that I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to take Ron Fuller out. I'm going to break his leg. I'm going to hurt him. The whole deal. And and uh, and we had a couple other guys that came in, but Terry's the one I'm focusing on. And Terry came in, and and I booked myself 
against Terry in the early deal, and that I went out on my interview, and we're, we're really playing this thing up with realistic. As, I mean, it just it's it's like a shoot. It's so realistic, and I say, and I say, listen, it's the most important thing in my life that I ever do. The, the most important thing I've ever done. Most important thing I'll probably ever do is to stop Terry Funk in this tournament to see that he doesn't affect my brother's chances to wrestle Dory because my brother's the the big stud and he's going to be the next world champion and I'm going to be a part of him being that and that uh that Terry Funk stops right here and we go in to have the match and me and Terry go about I guess we go 25 minutes and the hardest match I've ever been in in my entire life and uh that Terry's in great shape young I'm in great shape now I'm young and we are turning it up and the people are just riveted because it's real it's just real and we're stiff with one another and and man Terry's calling those spots and we're rolling them out and and uh and at the end of the deal Terry's supposed to take me in a, in a Boston Crab, the old Boston Crab, and near the corner. And he winds up putting his head on the corner, giving himself leverage with the Boston Crab, and and, and, uh, and I have to give up. And I have to give up. And uh, and we're, we're painting this picture to the people in Knoxville. So real, so realistic that I, uh, to give up, to submit, when I say it's the most important thing I'll ever do or I've ever done, uh, and after a match that grueling, and I think when he lets me go and I fall and and I'm exhausted so bad that I can't even sit up. I can't even I I I, I, I give everything I have. In, in my body and Terry he's exhausted too but he he did winter and hand up and he leaves and and I lay there and my brother's standing in the back of the building and he's watching and he looks and he thinks that I'm having a heart attack so hmm. so he comes down to the ring and uh and hurries down to the ring and he comes inside and he asks me he says are you all right you know and I say I'm exhausted yeah I can't I can't even, I, I don't think I can even set up. And he says, oh, come on, you got to try to set up. And all. And the, whole, the crowd's watching this, and they can just feel it. They can just feel it. I mean, it's just, it, you know, it's moments like that that I would say is the best stuff that I've ever been able to do, that I can feel it. I, I'm, the, the, the audience is real. We're, we're a packed house. I've 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 lost. I've worse than lost. I've give up on the thing that meant the most in all of the world to me. Now my brothers, it's all on him. He's got to beat three guys to meet, and one of the guys is Terry Funk, the guy that made me give up. But that's the type of stuff that we did that in Continental and in Southeastern wrestling. That's the type of stuff that we did. That we had the people riveted. On, on the type of stuff I wanted from Johnny B. Bad to shave his head and thing. I wanted to touch 
the audience, and I wanted them to touch me. Uh, I wanted them to be in me and me in them. I, I wanted to have a communication that was unreal, and I developed that from an interview on TV to going in a match and saying, this would be the best match I ever have in my life. I'm going to make it that way. And then at the end, I'm going to give it all. I can't take any more. I give up. And the most important thing in all my life. But you can see it, can't you? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's you, you, amazing. You, you, you can see it. But but I tried in, in uh, all of my years of Continental and working for Jarrett, working for that I, I tried to find that type of intensity, that type of emotion, that type of feeling, that connection with my audience. And uh, I could get it with Jerry Lawler. Good gosh, as a young boy, but gosh, dog, I'd work hard for it. And I would pressure him. He'd get scared <laughs> because I would hit him and hurt him. And and I would hmm. get too close that, you know, he would want me back up, back up, get, give, give me some room, give me some. No, no. And I said, there is no friggin' room. Your ass belongs to me. <laughs> and and it, it it went into the audience that you know it, it just passed right on to the audience they just said hey hot dang he's hurting him they say hell yes i'm hurting him <laughs> i say yeah and i don't mind if he hurts me because that's what we're here for and uh and you know i, I live live my business like that and uh guys who, who who's done that boy I have great respect for them I know you guys have talked to some guys. You've had some guys on your show. Good Lord, Hanson and some of the people, some guys that give it all. They say, man, I'm going to hurt you, but I expect you to hurt me. I expect you to. But uh, but don't don't look for an easy way out because, uh, you know, you're going to have to pay your dues tonight because you, you came to the show. People bought the ticket. It's me and you. <laughs> you know what that means. <laughs> We're going to go at it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I I won't. I don't like to wrestle or think about wrestling now at the age of in my sixties because I can't do it. I can't do it. Yeah. I, I I could go and try to try to somehow entertain people or do some, but but I can't do it, and so I won't even try. That I I I I gave that up because I I have too much pride in the years of being able to do that and do it right. Poor Jimmy, wow. old bunkhouse buck. He goes out there and he'll do his very best and all, and I and I, I really applaud him for it. But I say, you know, I just, I, I just, I can't. I, I, in my heart, I know I can't do it, and I'm just not going to even try. But boy, I got those memories of times when I give it all up, give it all up. It's great, great business, man. When you do that, you can look back on it. It's uh, you, you know, you've done your best. Totally, and the memories and the stories that you share with us for a lifetime of professional wrestling history just has been off the charts. And I, I want to personally thank you for coming on. I know John is right behind me in that sentiment. But before we let you go, you touched on it and used the specific words earlier as your legacy. Uh, but we like to end this as the last question before we kind of get into the, the plug aspect. But the fuller name, you know, your whole entire career, when the book is finally closed on professional wrestling, 
what is the lasting impact of what you, your family, your father, your brother, your uncles, what everybody brought to professional wrestling? Uh, we we love the sport. We loved it. We loved it. You know, I just people look at professional wrestling and they say, ah, it's not wrestling. Uh, but I know I, I wrestled in high school. I was a state champion in Georgia, and that I know the difference. Believe me. But I have such a great respect for what it takes in wrestling, professional wrestling. It's it's much more difficult than going amateur and seeing the kid across the mat from you and trying to beat him in six minutes. It's uh, it's. It's this. This is the most trying thing you'd ever do in your life, and to be able to do it, and do it well, and connect with your audience, and see them move to the edge of their seat, and then to stand up, and then to come to that apron, and next thought is they're coming in the ring because they they're they're too captivated by what's going on. That man, that's movies. That's the best thing in all the world that I have a great respect for it. I don't look at wrestling and say, ah, it's not real, it's WWE, it's not real, it's not real. Well, believe me, if people don't believe it, they generally won't buy the ticket. Vince has kind of changed all of that, but heck with Vince and all of that, That the, the my family, my legacy, my thing is that we love wrestling, and therefore we give it all up so that the people get the dangest show they ever paid the dollar for. And then we've done our job. That's it. And that's that's the best way I think that we could end this because that is a phenomenal way to look at it. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.